Hello, everyone around the world, and welcome to our special presentation. As the Nahum Siegel Network and American Friends of Bar Ilan University presents a live broadcast event with Malcolm Honline today, minutes from now, a ceremony will begin at Bar Ilan University in Israel, and Malcolm Honline will become a 2018 honorary doctoral recipient. He'll be delivering a lecture to launch a new impact center for the study of Judaism in Israel and North America. We will broadcast all of this for you live here at the Nahum Siegel Network, so you will hear his lecture, hear his words. And after all of that, after the official ceremony at Bar-Ilan University in Israel, we will broadcast an assortment of star professors, interviews with star professors and researchers from Bar-Ilan University and I thank and we thank the American Friends of Bar-Ilan University for entrusting us in this uh, amazing project as we broadcast to the world and um, really put together this special, which no doubt will quickly become a historic and a very meaningful ceremony and presentation that will be looked upon for years to come as a very significant moment in Bar Ilan history. I thank Miriam L. Wallach, who is here in our New York City headquarters. Welcome to our special broadcast. Thank you. Good morning. Good morning. Um, the American Friends of Bar Ilan University have entrusted us to uh, bring all of this all of the activity going on in Israel today to our listeners and other listeners from around the world. Um, this is a uh, a unique thing for us that we're covering an event in Israel while not actually being in Israel, uh, but enjoying the presentation as it's going to happen at Bar Ilan and bringing it to everybody here. Um, I don't know what percentage of our audience is familiar with Bar Ilan University. I don't know what they know. I don't know... Uh, you know how familiar they are with the um, with the history and the importance of the institution. So we will try at different points during this uh, presentation to uh, give everybody a little bit of a perspective of how important an institution it is, both in Israel and the entire Jewish world. Well, even if they're not, they are certainly familiar with Malcolm, right? Who has been a trusted member of how many broadcasts? Well, it's funny, and I'm glad. I'm really glad that you have asked this question, have started this segment uh, with that question, because uh, I was I was wondering myself over the weekend about the longtime relationship that JM and the AM and the Malcolm Siegel Network has had with Malcolm Homeline. And uh, for those of our listeners who, as you said, you know, would find it even more interesting, this whole uh, ceremony and. Uh, and special day at Bar Ilan because he's involved. It uh, it behooves us to go through a little bit of history. I would I would assume, I would think a minor history lesson. A minor history lesson. And <laughs> by the way, the music in the background is the music that is being featured on the actual live broadcast. What will be the live broadcast of the event, which we are told will begin with the master of ceremonies, Mr. Michael Jesselson, at Bar Ilan University. So as soon as he takes the podium, we'll certainly switch over to what's happening in Israel. 
Um, many, many years ago, I'm talking about in the early 1990s, in the early 1990s, I was introduced to a Malcolm Honeline. Um, we happened to be spending the, the same Shabbos at the same place. And I had an opportunity to meet him and start uh, discussing different things with him. You know, as <laughs> as you know, at this point, when I meet someone like that, I have a million questions. <laughs> and I was already interviewing him then on that first Shabbos <laughs> afternoon. And um, found him fascinating and figured it would be a good idea to bring him on the air just to discuss current events and hear his perspective on different things that were going on. And what happened was on, on random days... Uh, during random times, at random points during the year, I would ask him to join me on JM in the AM and just give his, you know, his answers to my questions regarding what's going on in this crazy world of ours, as I like to call it. And this went on for, you know, he'd be on every four, five, six weeks for a period of years or a number of years. And this uh, kept going until September 11th, 2001. On September, and and by the way, before 9-11, his his usual uh, mantra, the analysis that he gave about this world almost always included something to do with Islamic fundamentalism. That was the topic that he brought to us and to the Jewish world and really to the world, to the free world, um, whenever he would visit the White House, whenever he would discuss things with members of the media and certainly on our show. It was always about Islamic fundamentalism, the rise of Islamic fundamentalism, the danger of Islamic fundamentalism. And of course, he ended up being right to the point where on September the 11th of 2001, the day that New York and Washington were attacked, um, we made a point of mentioning that he has been warning the United States about this for a long time. It was on that day, or maybe a day or two after, Oh, they're testing the microphone in Israel. That's a good sign. Uh, it was on that day that he and I spoke and decided that because of the severity of the situation, now that America is in this war, so to speak, really in this war, we should have a, a more regular spot where we're discussing the uh, news of the day and of the week. And sure enough, the weekly update on a Friday morning was born in September of 2001. And it's been going, it's now 2018, so it's been going for almost 17 years as a weekly feature. One that's extremely popular, one that uh, even um, even when, when there's not much news, and there are times when there's not that much news to discuss, there's always something to discuss. There's right. always something going on. Even the quiet, on. it's not quiet. Right, exactly. Uh, and we've kept this up, we've kept this up, and uh, I'm glad that I'm still able to come up with questions. He certainly comes up with answers, and... Um, Therefore, JM in the AM every single Friday morning is um, is really the address where people go to to hear a, uh, I would say for what we're used to in the media, a unique perspective. And, you know, we talk about what's good or bad for the Jews, quote unquote. You're going to hear it from Malcolm on Friday mornings when we speak to him. So that's how it all started. Uh, when we heard about the, um, the degree... The honorary doctoral that he'll be receiving today uh, was quite exciting. He has been in the news recently because he's announced that he is starting to step away from the Conference <laughs> of Presidents of Major American Jewish Organizations. In fact, we're not packing any boxes yet. Though. In fact, in this magazine article, it's funny <laughs> you say that, because in this magazine article, in the subtitle or in the little blurb that comes along with the 
title of the article, it says, there was something very cute, I think it was here, uh, Malcolm Honline has represented the interests of the Jewish people to United States presidents, Arab kings, and European prime ministers for the past three decades. Now that he's announced that he's stepping away, if ever slightly, <laughs> without stepping down, he talked about present threats and challenges, but that's not all. He also shared surprising details of private conversations with world leaders. So this is an article that was written uh, fairly recently about him and they talk about the uh, the fact that he is stepping away but it's going to be a slow process which is good of course we've gotten right we've gotten um we've received feedback over the years after numerous weekly updates isn't there anything good to say isn't there anything doesn't malcolm have anything inspiring to tell us is there any good news but the truth of the matter is um is that number one everything he has ever shared on the air has been completely Honest, accurate, and legitimate. Right. He is literally, I mean, he's, that's Manhattan with its speaking part, folks. Um, he is literally telling it as it is. And oftentimes we find that difficult to swallow. But the bottom line is, is that the more informed we are as a people, the better off we are as a people. No question about that. And uh, he has told it like it is, as you just mentioned. And uh, oh, by the way, I'm, I'm glad you just, uh, something you said struck me. I want people to realize that the, Actual video that we are going to be, you know, playing for everybody in audio form is available on our website. So those who want to watch what's happening in Israel, you go to nachumsegel.com. Mm-hmm. You could watch what's happening on the on the site, and obviously, right after all the speeches have concluded, turn to us, whether on the app or on the website, and you'll be able to hear all of the interviews and wrap up that we're going to be doing after the ceremony at Bar-Ilan University in Israel. If I'm not mistaken, by the way, mm-hmm. this is not Malcolm's first honorary doctorate. But oh, I believe it, that, yeah. But it is his first from any Israeli institution. Correct. That is correct. Um, in fact, uh, I don't know I don't know how often Israeli institutions actually would give an award like this to a foreigner, so it's probably a real exception, I would is think. That, uh, uh, probably. I don't know if it's a rule. I'm just saying it right. probably generally doesn't happen, you know. Right, and I'm sure that there was probably some back and forth. Right, is this a good idea? You know, is this the direction? Who's going to have a problem with it? <laughs> but, um, but, but clearly they went in what would be the appropriate and and correct direction by bestowing this degree upon him and asking him to speak today as they open this new um, this new initiative. If you if you hear if you as we raise the volume on what's happening out in Israel, mm-hmm. you can hear in the background plenty of talking. We've got we've we've got a very good clear signal it seems. <laughs> so we'll be uh, joining them coming up. Um, so we mentioned how he uh, you know became a part of the JMAM broadcast. How people pay careful attention and tune in on Fridays. There he already has to say. You a moment ago alluded to the fact that there are those who are concerned that when he speaks, there really isn't good news out there, and he does throw in some good news at times. When there's good news to report, right? But right. I re- I recall <laughs> I recall that one one Friday after he spoke, <laughs> my mother she was elderly at the time uh, <laughs> was convinced that the world was coming to an end. <laughs> but I, but I mean literally like coming tomorrow? to an end. Yes, like you know, like empty your bank accounts, n- nuclear weapons, and <laughs> the bank accounts would be irrelevant. You know, basically. And I called him from her apartment and said, do me a favor. Please. I can't go into Shabbos Talk like this. Tell my mother. <laughs> Tell my mother <laughs> that as far as you know. We do not need canned goods. And as far as you conjecture, the world is not coming to an end this weekend. And he actually did it. Like he played along, which is really nice. Well, listen, when it comes to people's mothers, 
Everyone's just in it. We're all in it together. That's true. New, I, you do not need a tinfoil hat this weekend, Mrs. Siegel. I remember when uh, when Yoni we. Yoni doesn't even know what I'm talking about a tinfoil hat. I remember we were with Ambassador Bolton, and I oh. I said to him, "My mother's your biggest fan. It would be the greatest thrill." And he got on this. We have a picture. Yeah, of him we do. On, I thought about that phone. picture when yeah. he was when he was um, recently named. Right. I immediately somebody said, "Oh, maybe maybe you can get on." Somebody speaking. Well, I always want to see. Right. Soundtracks. I somebody said, Oh, do you think you can get on John Bolton? And I said, Well, he's good friends with Mrs. Eagle. (laughs) Unfortunately, Mrs. Eagle has passed. (laughs) Um, but yeah, that was a great moment. It was also a break from your personality. In that Yeah, that's true. A huge break. That is not my style. No, no, no. (laughs) Where you would go up to a a prominent official and say, You need to please but when it comes to mothers Although in my defense. Uh, I mean, there was if, nothing. He in, loved it, right? But in my defense, yeah. If you recall, it wasn't me who actually asked him. It was someone I, else. Trust me, who insisted that they. I know. Asked I him. was just happy you didn't ask me to have to go up to Mr. Bolton and say, "Excuse me, Ambassador, so I'm t- really sorry." So today, as you listen, the Nahum Siegel Network and the American Friends of Barilan University take great pride. We are heading to Israel, heading to Israel virtually through sights, through sights and sounds. Oh, they're actually putting up the video right now. This That's is good. great. Yeah. Um, today, until 2 p.m. Eastern Time, you're going to be hearing not just uh, the live presentation as Malcolm Holmline is awarded the honorary doctoral. You'll also be hearing our conversations that will be happening afterwards. For instance, let me give you a for instance. The Israel Indiana Jones oh my gosh. is expected on the air with us. Very exciting. He is actually, I think he's in our last slot for today. Yes, he is. Very uh, excited. He is, um, where are we here? Uh, where do I have him here? Give me a second. Here we go. Um, we have him as uh, Bari Lan's professor, Aaron Mayer, his 20-year excavation of the biblical city of Gat and how archaeology deepens our roots in the land of Israel, speaking of good news from Israel. For sure. So we will speak with him, the Indiana Jones uh, of Israel. Uh, we also have um, Rabbi Ari Khan. We always love speaking with him. He's now involved in a really unique project, and that's the book, co-authored with Senator Lieberman about the holiday of Shavuos. Right. So that's pretty cool. We'll speak with him coming up. Also in the 1 o'clock Eastern Time Hour, a Barilan alumni is going to join us. We'll have Dr. Tova Genzel, director of Barilan's Midrashah with us. Alan Zeckelman, the chairman of the board of the American Friends of Barilan University, who can talk about the pride of Barilan today better than Alan. He'll join us. And uh, we are scheduled uh, to have all the remarks live from Israel between now and 1 p.m. Eastern time before we embark on those conversations. So just a few minutes away, we were told originally 11.45 Eastern time they're going to try to start. So we are literally minutes away from the start of this ceremony in Israel, which is supposed to be uh, kicked off by Michael Jusselson, the event's MC. And then, uh, <laughs> and then they're doing a lot of testing there. And then after that's concluded, uh, which will be about um, about 1 p.m. Eastern time, uh, we will get to some of those conversations. Now, it's hard it, it's hard for us to conjecture what Malcolm's going to say today, or Mr. Honline, what he's going to say to the world today, because this is not a speech about current events. No. This is not a speech about the things he's usually speaking about. Right. This is specifically... Um, to celebrate the launch of a new impact center for the study of Judaism in Israel and North America. And there have been a tremendous, I mean, there's a little bit of news in there, obviously, because there's been tremendous change 
and tremendous developments in terms of Judaism, both Israel and North America, and the relationship between the two over the last few years. So he can uh, he can take a lot of different directions uh, on that topic, and we'll see how, in fact, uh, he plays it uh, when it comes to speaking about the new impact center for the study of Judaism in Israel and North America. By the way, let me take this opportunity to direct everybody to the American Friends website. I mentioned earlier that we're we're unclear about the number of people in our audience who know about the history of Bar Ilan University, a very rich history, of course. And um, that music, by the way, coming from the event itself. And um, one of the ways you could start to learn about the impact that Bar Ilan has had in Israel and really the entire Jewish world and just how active a support system they have here in the United States, you go to the American Friends of Bar Ilan University website, AF. BIU.org, AFBIU.org. Their, their tagline is Flagship of Tradition, the Future of a Nation. Flagship of Tradition, the Future of a Nation. And that really does sum up what Barilan is all about. So check it out. And, um, and you'll see uh, just some of the things that uh, Barilan has done since 1955 since the year they were founded Nahum, i remember a couple of years ago when you when we as a network broadcast from the campus of bar ilan for a different organization right. and we were stunned yeah. by the enormity of the campus a, a city within a city and every time we thought we had the right parking lot we had the wrong parking lot because it was absolutely enormous and even though we were there during the summer you could still see you know, people on campus and movement and bustle and just so many things going on that even in its you know, quieter state, you know, a, a summer month, so to speak, you could still feel and, and appreciate um, the importance of Bar Ilan. I was amazed at that time. I'm glad you're, you uh, recollect that uh, the summer with us because I remember at that time, the surrounding communities dominated oh, yeah. by young couples who are, you know, students and mm-hmm. or graduates already uh, from the campus and certainly professors, right. uh, you know, who have families there. And it was just, as you just described, you know, we always wondered what Barilan looked like and, and what it is like there. And anybody who visits would see it's much larger than you think. It is, it is even it is more historic for sure than you think. And it has all the elements of what any high quality university has and of course you toss in the fact that uh, that Jewish tradition in Israel is such an important part of it and you have uh, you have the full package of what Bar Ilan is providing it was a university city yeah it, it, akin to UCLA akin to uh, Washington State where you go and it's like a complete immersion it's not like Manhattan that has campuses built in whether it's Columbia whether it's Yeshiva University you know, there, there are, those are dedicated areas, but here it is, it's massive. Yeah, 100%. It's just massive. Very impressive. For sure. So not only do you think and speak of Barilan's pedigree and since the year it has started, which let's just keep in mind was less than a decade after the founding right. of the state of Israel. Right. So to think that in such a short time, Barilan has grown to the massive, um, and I don't even know what the right well, word I, is. Well, I want to give you an example of what you're saying. Okay. Do you know that they started with 70 students and now they could talk about 17,000 students? <laughs> so that would be a good indication of what's happened and since I wonder 1955. How, and I wonder how, what percentage of that 17,000 um, are overseas students. Yeah. It is no longer 
a um, just a a Hebrew speaking clientele. Right. It, there's a obviously there's a kibbutz galiot that that Barilan can speak to, and I'm sure that numerous languages can be heard on campus at any given time. Um, but that's not including the the students who come without having made Aliyah, who just want to study on campus. I was speaking to um, I was speaking to a college student over the weekend who remarked that her her roommate from New York was flying to Barilan for the summer to work in a lab and had received some kind of tremendous fellowship and could not believe the the opportunity she was being given by being able to not only study spend the summer in Israel but also be at a at a prestigious university like Barilan. That's a wonderful point. Your first point I have to go back to because it's so poignant and that is that I believe in our crowd. I can't speak for the entire Jewish community in the United States. But in our crowd, it is likely the the largest destination for American Jewish students. In our crowd, I believe Bar-Ilan University will completely outweighs and outshines the other universities in Israel when it comes to who's attracting American Jews, the ones that are in communities similar to ours. And that's, that's quite a statement. Right. Bar-Ilan University is hosting today's um, uh, ceremony. We, the Nahum Siegel Network and American Friends of Bar-Ilan University, bring it to you. Very exciting for us and very exciting for Bar Ilan when I was first contacted about this event. There was even speculation we might, we might actually be in Israel. That's how <laughs> that's how um, uh, that's how uh, happy and um, and thrilled they were that this event was taking place. They know how important this is for American Jewry, this event. And that is that Malcolm Holman is receiving his honorary doctoral at Bar Ilan and will deliver this very special lecture in the ceremony that we are awaiting. It should be on it should be starting very, very soon. Uh, then we get the opportunity, once the broadcast is over, to, to really uh, concentrate on the star professors and researchers from Bar-Ilan University who have been designated to join us in the 1 p.m. Eastern Time Hour today. And that we are very much looking forward to. You know, it's funny. I, uh, you ever see the uh, magazine, The Jerusalem Report? Yes. There's a magazine, Jerusalem Report, that I believe comes out every other week. And this week... Uh, when you open the magazine, the very inside cover is a um, discussion from Bar-Ilan University about nano drops. You know what nano drops are? Nano is something very small. Yes. After that, I'd have no idea. They have actually developed three doctors at Bar-Ilan University, three doctors, professors, researchers at Bar-Ilan University, um, have actually developed a nano drop, eye drops, that contain whatever particles oh, they put in right. that may solve the problem of wearing eyeglasses. Right. There may be a time where eyeglasses are obsolete. Crazy. And that all you have to do is put these drops, and as they adjust to your eyes, you'll be able to see you know, with perfect vision, depending on your near and farsightedness. All of this, as you'll see in that piece that I'm talking about, uh, where it says goodbye eyeglasses, question mark, all of this is because of the research being done at Bar-Ilan University, and you may recall that when we had uh, a representative of uh, Sharid Tzedek Medical Center, American friend, American Committee, Sharid Tzedek Medical Center in our studio, they cited it, how those right. professors from Bar-Ilan were working with doctors at, uh, at uh, Sharid Tzedek to already, you know, continue developing this and working on it, etc. So, a lot of things are going on in Israel, and companies are being sold for $7 billion or more. There was just another announcement this morning. 7.1. My God. Billion dollars or more. But uh, we sometimes forget how some of the things that are life-changing for people all around the world are coming from Israel as well. That's for sure.
אחד אחד Oh, that's another way of testing a microphone, right? Right. Right. Instead of uh, echad, it's echad, echad. <laughs> it, it took me a minute to figure out what was going on there. What do you think of the musical selection of the uh, ensemble that's over there at Byron University? I, I, well, when you and I were discussing before we went on the air about what music to begin this broadcast with from our end and you said what about this you know what do you expect there and i said i expect some acoustical guitars and lo and behold that's what we're listening to right right some of the music of some of the best american artists out there that's for sure uh those of you who are just tuning in it's a very exciting day today are we gonna have to start referring to malcolm as dr homeline oh i would guess so although i have a feeling that he's actually has received other doctoral i I know he has but maybe i mean maybe now we really should start one thing i will tell you this friday i'll refer to (laughs) as dr homeline or certainly today when we speak to him hopefully later on but maybe uh, same thing when i promo my show right and I let people know, remind people that on Fridays at 7.40, they can listen to the weekly update. I'm now going to have to say with Dr. Malcolm Hunt. Right. Yes. That is a, I mean, Nahum, before long, you know, we'll have to be referring to you as yeah. Dr. Nahum Siegel. Oh, I'm sure that's coming down the road, let me tell you. Listen. Universities are going to hesitate before giving me any type of award, trust all. me. Oh, not yes. at all. <laughs> this going to be the most entertaining speeches ever. That's for sure. Entertaining and nerve-wracking. By the way, we should speak for a second about the alumni of Barilan. Oh, um, some of the leaders of Israel. Uh-huh. I, I would argue some of the leaders in the diaspora as well. Correct. Speaking to the point we made earlier um, about uh, so many students coming in from outside of Israel to attend Barilan. And uh, if you look in the world of uh, government, in the world of technology, in the world of business and finance, in the world, frankly, of uh, Judaic studies, you are going to find... Some incredible and amazing uh, uh, people who are leaders in those areas of Jewish life in Israel uh, from Bar-Ilan University. In fact, I just saw a um, a recent visit by Dennis Prager to Bar-Ilan University, and he was accompanied by some really, really prominent academics. You're talking about those who are writing, you know, doctoral theses and books, uh, authoring works on a regular basis on uh, the most complicated. Of, uh, of subjects when it comes to uh, Jewish tradition, texts, etc. So yes, you have every single area covered by those who have uh, graduated Bar-Ilan University, and, uh, and uh, that should be noted. Um, are you watching the... Uh, I sure am. So it looks like they're... Uh, they're gathering. It looks like we have about five minutes. Yeah. It looks like we have about five minutes. Now, how does Yoni know that it's five minutes? Like He's putting up a five-minute signal, but how does he know that, I wonder? Um, Has he been told that by somebody? He checked the magic eight ball. No, but seriously, was he? Told? I assume that Just he not. was contacted. You were told, you were told by, that by somebody. Interesting. I assume he was contacted. Right. So here we are, and um, a drop behind schedule. But uh, there's a apparently, um, I don't know if you had heard about this. Apparently, there is a uh, uh, some inclement weather in Israel. I know. Right. The, I know the temperature is much cooler than we thought. There, it's in the 60s today, and a little bit of inclement weather. They actually moved locations for indoors right for this ceremony so uh, that could also be part of the slight delay that's uh, that's going on over there as we speak um right but we also um 
you know, we're also getting an opportunity to really get a close-up look at some of the attendees, right? Which is an advantage. You know, if we were outdoors, be more difficult. It would be much more difficult. We'd have a pan, we'd have a a panned-out shot, so to speak. Right. Um, and so this is this gives us an opportunity. I also assume that to the left of the podium. Well, now we don't see it, but to the left of the podium, there was a. A, a mock interview armchair setup. Mm. Um, so there it is. So I presume that that is where the the Q and A. Yeah, the continued conversations will take place. I wonder, by the way, if the Q and A that is scheduled will continue to take place, being that mm. we do not have the audience, the crowd that was initially anticipated. Again, because the move was made to go indoors as a result of the weather. Interesting. We'll see what adjustments are made. Uh, at, at some point last week, you and I just happened to stumble upon a conversation, um, I guess because of this event, about Malcolm Honeline. And um, and we had discussed where he went to school. And I, right. and I, and I said, I think he was in University oh, of Pennsylvania. There's Robert Katz. And do we see Robert there? We sure do. There's Robert Katz. Oh, there he is. There's Robert. Yep. American Friends of Barilan University. And we thank Robert for his help today. Oh, that you for say sure. that again. Him and his staff, phenomenal. Mm-hmm. I mean, so far, so good, to say the least. Our thanks to Lania. Thanks to Alana. Yeah, you were saying, I'm sorry. So he went to Temple University, right? Hence the Pennsylvania connection. He went to Temple University and then to University of Pennsylvania where he earned a PhD. So I guess he's a doctor already in international relations. Uh, during that time, he emerged as a student leader who helped to found the North American Union of Jewish Students and later served as the first American leader of the World Union of Jewish students. Then after that, he took a job as executive director of Greater New York Conference of Soviet Jury, then JCRC, and of course in 1986 joined the Conference of Presidents. That's the that's the short bio, the short timeline <laughs> of Mr. Holmline's career. And uh, again, to your point earlier about how to address him, I guess I've been remiss not addressing him as doctor till this point, if in fact that that's accurate, that he has a PhD in uh, international relations. I mean, how many PhDs, honorary or otherwise, can one person have? <laughs> that, that's a good question. I, could you imagine what his wall looks like in his office? <laughs> it's got to be filled with many distinguished awards, that's for sure. That is one long business card that he has in the first place. You know, one of the first times that I was really introduced to the world of Malcolm, besides the weekly interviews, was when he was guest of honor at the dinner by the Conference of Presidents. Oh, right. That was uh, 2013, maybe? That was a year into my working here, so correct? About 2013, yeah. And um, that was such an incredible night. An impressive crowd, including uh, President George W. Bush. Right. And the number of people who filled that room to pay tribute to Malcolm. From around the world. From around the world. Notables, family members. I mean, I don't... Besides, yes, President uh, George W. Bush being in the room, which was, oh, I see Rabbi Ari Berman in the back. Um, Besides George W. Bush being, you don't, yes, Rabbi Berman is there. President of Yeshiva University is at Bar-Ilan University. Correct. We see him on screen also. And by the way, this speaks well uh, for- um, And there's Malcolm. For the discussion we had with Rabbi Dr. Ari Berman about- Yeshiva University reaching out to universities in Israel to continue the partnership that uh, that YU has with Israel, to strengthen it, I should say, the partnership that they have with Israel. Very nice. And General Counsel Avi Lauer met last week also with members of that community here in New York. Nice. To continue about... Um, to continue the discussion or to have his part in the discussion as well. Um, but regardless, getting back to the dinner, mm-hmm. um, besides the notables um, who... 
were were effusive in their remarks about Malcolm that night. I do not think he looked prouder than when he was on stage with his grandchildren. Oh, yeah, that's always the case. That sure. was tremendous. Well, he understands um, better than most. He understands the importance of Jewish continuity and sometimes the challenge of Jewish continuity. So when he's on stage with all those grandchildren who are his pride and joy, who are mm-hmm. upstanding members of the Jewish community, there's no question it had quite an impact not only on you but the entire crowd and, of course, he and his wife themselves. He is certainly a man who appreciates family. Oh, yeah, no question Who takes family that. very seriously. I, I enjoy um, what seems like on a weekly basis when you ask him where his next speaking engagement is and, and it happens to be at a bar mitzvah. Right, for a grandchild. For a grandchild. I think that's absolutely wonderful. And when you ask him whether he is going to mind if somebody in the community or in the shul says, uh, Mr. Honline, while you're here, <laughs> do you mind speaking at Shalashudas? And he politely says that he is you know, only there as a guest, etc., that he is there as part of the Simcha. To me, it's also just very telling about his priorities. Yep, no question about it. Right. That's the way it should be. And like I said, people... Um, uh, people uh, from a you know from certain generations understand that not everyone is lucky to see generations in our community, and he's one who certainly appreciates it mm-hmm. um, and understands the importance of uh, recognizing and appreciating the next generation and subsequent ones. The Nachum Siegel Network and American Friends of Barilan University present a live broadcast event with Malcolm Honline as the centerpiece from Israel. It is twelve noon here on the East Coast. And in just a few minutes in Israel, the lineup of speakers will begin. We are anxiously awaiting not only uh, all the speakers, but specifically the uh, presentation by Malcolm Holmline as he accepts an honorary doctoral from Bar-Ilan University. And a big thank you to American friends of Bar-Ilan University. Um, AFBIU.org. AFBIU.org. In addition, um, uh, we'll have a, uh, a post-game, so to speak, a, a wrap-up of the ceremony in Israel as we feature an assortment of all-star professors and researchers from Bar Ilan who are going to be joining us uh, after the um, uh, presentations and after the speech, the lecture by Malcolm Honline. His lecture will launch the brand-new Impact Center for the Study of Judaism in Israel and North America. And uh, many people uh, in the room uh, in Israel... And uh, certainly people listening from around the world who are anxious to hear what he has to say on that topic. And uh, we'll have it for you as we uh, carry the entire thing live from Bar-Ilan University. As we mentioned, um, among the notables, among those who are in attendance, Rabbi Dr. Ari Berman, the fifth president of Yeshiva University, is there. Many other distinguished uh, members of the community, both in Israel and the United States, are there at Bar-Ilan today. Uh, many representing the American Friends of Barilan University as they take great pride in events like this. And it gives all of us a chance to reflect on the impact that Barilan University has had on the worldwide Jewish community. I thank you for listening to the Nachum Siegel Network. And as, as soon as you hear it in the background, the uh, the background noise, so to speak, that's going on at uh, the site in Barilan. And as soon as everything is settled there, we will bring you those speeches live. And in person. It's actually a lot of fun to watch the behind the scenes. Yeah, for us, it's pretty cool here. Yes. And um, they're trying to get the event started. They are. <laughs> they must be. I, I, I feel badly. I think that that's Michael Jesselson in the background if you're looking at yeah, the podium. I see him there. Um, so he's approaching the podium or he's in the 
vicinity. The on-deck circle. Right, exactly. Yay, baseball fans. Um, it must be frustrated, uh, frustrating when, when you know, you're, you're working towards something for so long and you have to make last-minute changes. In this case, it was uh, weather not permitting right. to be outside, and so they are regrouping and doing so rather efficiently. Uh, we appreciate everyone's patience, that's for sure. Um, but uh, they, there certainly is an, um, an esteemed member, esteemed members of the Jewish community and the Israeli community are, are there in present in that room. Including the Prime Minister's office, as we know, is represented because the Director General of the Prime Minister's office is scheduled to speak right. and to talk about the significance of the event. By the way, when Malcolm was uh, asked about his relationship with the, with the presidents, and of course we mentioned George W. Bush, m- many people out there know that they were very close, but he, he told a story that I, I was not aware of. I thought I had ho- heard all his stories, but this one I didn't know about. Uh, and Michael Jesselson is now approaching the podium. He is the uh, MC of the event. And here we go. Um, what I said was I welcome everyone here and uh, especially our visitors from abroad and we're going to of course continue in English for everybody's behalf. Uh, good evening. Nearly do we have to wait? This we have to wait for. For Gita, we all wait. Gita. That was not on the schedule, but you know. It's. Uh, nearly 70 years ago, Bar Ilan University was founded by American Jews. In November of 1950, shortly after the establishment of the State of Israel, the Mizrahi Convention held in Atlantic City uh, established Barilan University, symbolized by its logo, a Sefer Torah and a microscope. Today, as Israel is celebrating its 70th anniversary, it's only right to revisit this relationship between American Jewry and Israeli Jewry. This symbiotic relationship is more important today than it was 70 years ago. As 40% of the Jews in the world live in Israel, and 40% of the Jews live in America, never have we had in our history a situation where the vast majority of our people live in just two countries. At the same time, both communities are facing major, albeit nuanced, identity crises. In America, we are facing rampant assimilation as evidenced by the great majority of young American Jews not seeing themselves as Jews and not feeling a real connection with Israel and its people. We are all aware of the frightening statistic that 70, which we've now lived for for many years, that 70% of American Jews intermarry. In Israel, we are facing a different kind of assimilation, a new secular generation who have unconsciously replaced Judaism with nationalism and do not feel a real connection with the greater world Jewry. Tonight we are fortunate to have with us leading figures who deal with these relationships. This codependent relationship, which is necessary 
to secure the future of our people. My good friend Malcolm Honline has for 32, 32 years served as the executive chairman of the Conference of Presidents of Major American Jewish Organizations. What's interesting, and I'll explain it a bit later, many people who aren't actively involved don't even know of the organization, especially in Israel, or of Malcolm, which is evidence of how he's the real thing, of how much he really does. Um, it's also amazing, the old story of uh, 10 Jews, 11 opinions, to have an or to head up an organization which is presidents of all the Jewish organizations. I mean, think of what goes on in the Knesset. Think how hard it is to put together uh, a government. And here Malcolm has successfully handled the left, the right, the center, all the organizations, and the presidents, which are all alphas. Uh, they all admire him, respect him, and they've done amazing things. I mean, it's a really unique organization, and it's a credit to Malcolm. Um, he's on his head. Okay. Okay, keep on, and a keep on his head, and a, anyway. <laughs> um, so, uh, uh, as I said, he's been at the forefront of world Jewish scene and knows very well the American-Israel Jewish issues. Um, okay, just one second. Um, Um, over the years, Malcolm has had access to major world leaders, ranging from king, literally this is from kings, prince, princes, presidents, prime ministers, Russian heads of state. Worked tirelessly on, on many levels for the Jewish people, and what impresses me the most is it's not about himself. He's behind, he's at the forefront, behind the scenes, and it's just amazing what he has done for our people. And the, as I said. It's quietly. Um, and here we also able, we welcome Mr. Ellie Groner, the Director General of the Prime Minister's Office. <laughs> and an American expat, patriot, and most important, a product of Barilan. Uh, I think you got your BA here. Exactly, so. See, Malcolm, you, you still have to work on that. <laughs> well, you get a doctorate, so you really go, go the other way. Um, and he clearly has been at the forefront and knows very well these critical issues. Malcolm, on a personal note, as chairman of the Global Board of Barilan, and even more so as an admirer and fellow Yekka. Both of us are Yekkas, even though he complains that I'm not on time. Um, I want to congratulate you on the honorary doctorate you will be receiving tomorrow night. Sixteen years ago, I shared the honor together with you when we each received honorary degrees from Yeshiva University. And I also want to take the time to welcome the president of Yeshiva University, <laughs> Rabbi Dr. Ari Berman. And I think it's very appropriate that he's here, one, because of the specialness of Yeshiva and Barilan, and also for the discussion of this evening. Um, tomorrow night, the honor is all yours. And on behalf of Jews everywhere, I emphatically say you deserve it. It's also a, comp a proper completion that you, in light of what you have done, are doing, and stand for, will now have an honorary degree from both Yeshiva University in America and Bar Ilan University in Israel. University professor, Professor Ari Saban, who's on the left of Malcolm, 
has defined the university's third mission. It's third because the first two are education and research. But the third mission, which is Judaism. And Judaism is what unites us all globally. Barley Omni University is proud to launch tonight its newest impact center called Past, Present, Future, Judaism in Israel and North America for research on these challenges. The impact center will be far reaching both in terms of its scope and range of issues. Dean Professor Eliasis should be up. Dean of the Faculty of Jewish Studies and Professor Adam Furziger from the Israel and Golda Kochitsky Department of Jewish History and Contemporary Jury will deal together with this topic. I'm pleased now to introduce Professor Ari Saban, whose vision of impact beyond excellence is helping to create impact centers. Oh no, you're not doing great. Okay. Well, I do what I'm told, okay. So, but it, it, in any event, he still is responsible and, and is the man behind creating all various impact, impact centers. Today, that's the buzzword. It used to be excellence. This is beyond excellence, impact, really making a difference throughout all the different areas um, throughout the university. So as I've been told, it's now time to introduce uh, uh, Professor Assis. Um, I'd like to call on Professor Assis. Is that correct? Yes? yes. No. No, no. That was Michael Jesselson, the MC of the event at Bar-Ilan University, Professor Elias Assis. Um, he's no stranger to diaspora jury, born in England, and then later serving as a pulpit rabbi in England. He was a visiting professor in countries all over the world, um, and we would appreciate if you could give us some greetings. Dr. Assis is the Dean of Faculty for Jewish Studies. Here are his remarks. Thank you, Michael. In order to save time, I will uh, skip all the uh, senior people that we have here, and each one of you with all the respect that you deserve. And I'll just say a few short words. It's a great honor and privilege to open this special launching night of this new impact center for the study of Judaism in Israel and North America. The relationship between the Jewish community in Israel and the diaspora, this word may be a bit loaded, but I will still nevertheless use it, the word the diaspora, has always been a great issue since early days of our existence. I would like to open with a short anecdote I served uh, in the early 90s as one of the managers of Midrashat Lindenbaum, of Or Torah, of Rabbi Riskin. And then I met the first time uh, young girls finishing their high school, coming to Israel. And then I remember a discussion be between those young girls asking what would happen if there was a war between America and Israel? Who would they join, the American army or the Israeli one? I was obviously astonished by this question, but yet that was the discussion. A few years later, at the late 90s, when I was a rabbi in London, then I was the headmaster of a Sunday school in my synagogue then, 
And then I heard youngsters, young boys and girls of 12 and 13, this time in Britain, asking the same question. What would happen if there was a war between Britain and Israel? Which army would they join? And it seems, as uh, Michael has mentioned earlier, the tension between the communities and the question of identity of Jews in Israel and the identity of Jews abroad in the diaspora has always been a major issue. I would like to open with a surprising um, story about Joseph. Joseph was the first person to be in exile, much before the people of Israel went into exile. And even then, we see that Joseph knew his identity by the fact that he's connected to his family, to his parents, to his father, to his brothers. And yet, the, the time came when Joseph was the one that saved his brothers from famine in the land, and then we can see this mutual contribution of identity to the diaspora and the assistance of diaspora to the people of Israel in the land. I think it's an excellent idea and it's so simple and it's difficult to imagine how no one thought about this before Adam. But Adam thought that this is a great idea to, to establish a new impact center that will deal with the Jewishness and the relationship between diaspora and between the community in the land of Israel. And I thank Adam for his initiative. And I also would like to thank the president for his support, because without his support for this great idea, then we wouldn't be here. And this outstanding turnout to this event only shows how important this is. So I really would like to thank the president, to thank Adam and all the important guests that came here and to support us. And we hope that with a lot of assistance, with a great, with additional um, initiatives of Adam, we will make really an impact on the community in Israel and the community in America, and maybe, maybe even beyond that region. Thank you very much. Remarks by Professor Eliasis, Dean of Faculty for Jewish Studies at Bar Ilan University. Uh, we are in the middle of the uh, ceremony that's taking place, the lecture and discussion in Israel. To deal with the relationships between American Jewry and Israeli Jewry, just days before the United States Embassy is moving its Israeli headquarters to Jerusalem and a few weeks after the Israeli 70th anniversary. In that regard, I'd like to call, I'd like to call upon Mr. Eli Groner, the Director General of the Prime Minister's Office, to give greetings on behalf of the State of Israel. That was Michael Jesselson, the event MC at Bar-Ilan University. Here's Ellie Groner, Director General from the Prime Minister's Office, with his remarks on this occasion. You said earlier that you just do what you're told. That's one of the differences between American Jewry and Israeli Jewry. We do what we, we, do what we want. <laughs> to Professor Assis, I would only say that um, the debate that you heard in originally, I guess, at uh, Lindenbaum over which side to pick in a, in a theoretical war between Israel and the United States 
to me, it makes as much sense to discuss that as it does to say, whose side are you going to take, your mother or your father, if, they, uh, if there's a hypothetical divorce? There are certain things that don't need to be discussed ahead of time. And, um, you know, these should be treated with the same sort of um, care that, that it warrants. To all the presidents and, and professors and deans and Malcolm, of course, <clears throat> I think this, you know, we're all here because of Judaism, world Jewry, specifically Israel and the United States. And there are, there are distinctions between Jewry and Judaism in Israel versus the United States. Now, it's true that we're all one, one nation, one family. In the United States, there is a cultural, a constitutional uh, separation of religion and state. And you can say it's better, you can say it's worse, you can say it's more appropriate, you can say less, it's less appropriate. But it certainly makes things easier. You can be a practicing Jew, and you can be a professional, and those worlds don't have to collide. In fact, many Jews throughout history have taken great care to ensure that those worlds don't collide. Exactly 70 years ago, with the establishment of the State of Israel, that distinction disappeared, at least for us. And the reason is because a state whose entire raison d'etre is, is the fact that it's a Jewish state cannot separate religion and state. And that presents many, many unique challenges for us in the sort of nerve center of the, of the country, the prime minister's office and government in general. When we're formulating policy, and it doesn't matter what the policy is. It could be welfare policy, it could be security policy, anything in between. We are, in essence, formulating the official Jewish policy in that respective field. And if you believe that Judaism has what to say on everything, from how um, alimony payments should be made to what the natural, what the development of our natural resources should look like, and what percentage should go to taxpayers and what percentage should go to entrepreneurs and whatnot. If you believe that Judaism has what to say on each and every one of those things, then these challenges, these unique challenges that the Jewish people never faced before 70 years ago, before May 1948 bring the whole approach to what it means to be Jewish in a different light. For thousands of years, Talmudic scholars, of which there are a number in the room, um, debated, hypothetically, what should our policy be? What is Jewish policy for redeeming hostages? I'm using that as one example of a million. But when that discussion happens in the Prime Minister's office, in the Security Cabinet, what are we willing to give and what are we not willing to give to redeem our hostages, our soldiers, and whatnot? Those ancient years of Jewish history and Jewish theoretical policy become official policy. And when you're dealing with the 
sovereign nation state of the Jewish people, it takes on a whole new meaning. Now these are very, very complicated issues, and there's the traditional approach throughout the history of diaspora Jewry, and then there's contemporary Jewry in the state of Israel, and then there's of course the two worlds which have never thrived more, and both simultaneously no less. This center that's being launched here tonight, tonight's the official launch? I can think of, you know, Bar Ilan is the perfect institution in which to host um, this sort of thought leadership. There's a lot of thinking that needs to be done on this. There's a lot. We're in the very, very early stages. Um, what does it mean in 2018, 70 years after the establishment of the state of Israel? What does it mean to be Jewish in the United States, to be Jewish in Israel? What did that relationship look like? We're we are in the very, very early stages of thinking about this. And I can think of no better person, Malcolm, I'm talking about you now, I can think of no better person to be interviewed on the, uh, on the opening night and launch than the discussion with you. Who like you has uh, familiarity with both worlds? Who like you understands the importance of uh, the leadership of American Jewry, of diaspora Jewry? I'll take the risk of that loaded word. And, uh, and the importance and the power that we didn't have before of having an official Jewish state. Uh, I look forward to hearing the discussion. And I also look forward to reading and learning about what, um, what emanates from this uh, new think tank center, whatever it's officially being called. I think there's a lot more to do over the next 70 years, and I look forward to whatever emanates from here becoming a beacon for world Jewry, both in Israel and the United States. Thanks very much, and congratulations. Representing, representing the government of Israel, that was uh, Ellie Groner, Directi Director General of the Prime Minister's Office. Professor Adam Frisiger, I'd just like to add, it would be remiss not to acknowledge what the government and the uh, Prime Minister's Office has done in terms of birthright. I, as one of the founders, I was one of the original founders of birthright. I'm on flying for you. All right, there you go. But it's, with everything I said about the assimilation of American Jewry, it is the most important um, initiative that has affected big numbers. Talk about impact. It has done enormous impact. It, but it's not, it's not the end of the game. I mean, it, but it, at least it's addressing that major problem. And it was the first time that Israel saw its responsibility or the importance that it's not just aliyah, aliyah, that they had to invest in American jury coming to Israel. So, again, kalakabot. MC Michael Jesselson. About to introduce Adam Furziger. I'm not going to turn the microphone over to Professor Adam Furziger, who I've known literally all my life, uh, his life, <laughs> and acknowledge here his mother and his, and his sister, who also are part of the Riverdale community, and uh, who has dedicated <laughs> and who has dedicated his academic career to researching religious divides in modern and contemporary Judaism and to making his findings accessible not only to academics, but also to those active in Jewish public life. Adam will, inter will introduce the Impact Center, and then we will begin his interview with Malcolm Holman. Adam Furziger will present, um, will, will precede the presentation by Malcolm Holman, and then the Q&A with the uh, audience at the ceremony that's gonna be taking place. You're listening to the Nahum Siegel Network and the American Friends of Barilan University, live from Israel. This live broadcast 
featuring uh, star professors and researchers and launching the new Impact Center for the Study of Judaism in Israel and North Mr. America. Michael Justin, Chairman of the Board of Trustees, Professor Ariet Saban, President of the University, Professor Shula Michaeli, Vice President of Research, Professor Eli Assis, Dean of the Faculty of Jewish Studies, Rabbi Ari Berman, special guest and old friend from Yeshiva University. Leaders of, of Bar-Ilan University and distinguished fellow faculty members and administration. Mr. Ellie Groner, Director General of the Prime Minister's Office. <laughs> Mr. Malcolm Honlein, Honorary Doctoral Candidate. <laughs> Trustee members and honored guests including my mom. My mom. <laughs> and a shout out from afar as well to those listening on the Nahum Siegel Network. Thank you. <laughs> and finally, uh, I want to acknowledge old friend Gabby Weisfeld from Toronto, who's sitting here. And uh, this beautiful auditorium it was dedicated for her late husband, Louis, and in honor of Gabi, and it's really a pleasure to be speaking in this room. Erev Tov, and thank you to all those who were involved in planning and executing this event. Your efforts are appreciated deeply, and all of my fellow colleagues, I really appreciate you coming out here this evening, and all our friends as well. Just two weeks ago, one of America's most famous Jewish personalities, Natalie Portman, shocked local fans when she backed out on her commitment to accept a prestigious prize in Israel due to political considerations. With all the unfortunate fallout from the Portman boycott, I was struck more deeply by comments published the same week by prominent New York Times columnist and staunch Israel supporter, Brett Stevens. In an article intended to celebrate Israel's 70th Independence Day and defend it against its strongest critics, Stevens emphasized the fact that religious conflicts are alienating even some of Israel's most loyal North American supporters. Conflicts surrounding religion have intensified to such a degree that they threaten the core relationship, the very precious and important core relationship of the two most important centers of Jewish life in the world. Many bemoan the deteriorating division and will repeat mantras like, we are all one nation and we need to increase achtut, Jewish unity. Yet to date, little concerted effort has been made to analyze the foundations of this struggle and to propose creative and positive ways to reconceive the relationship. While these critical, with these critical issues in mind, we launch today the new Impact Center for Research on Judaism in Israel and North America. Our aim is to draw from the profound expertise and vast intellectual resources of this university in order to examine the relationship between the novel Jewish religious civilization that has developed since the mid-20th century in the state of Israel on one side, 
and the rich and diverse North American Jewish religious culture that has emerged in parallel. Our communities share much in common. But our guiding assumption in this center is that there are also fundamental differences between these two frameworks that are at the foundation of many of the more specific areas of debate. The longer, I'm referring here to some of the words of of, uh, Elie Groner, the longer that the Jewish religion is attached to a sovereign Jewish state, the more it will advance a religious mode that is distinct from the wide spectrum of voluntary religious ideological streams and collectives that characterize North American Judaism. Thus, before focusing on strengthening the shared parts, the key challenge is to acknowledge the competing versions of modern Judaism that are growing in parallel. Once we do this, we can spawn new tools and methods that will fortify our areas of common interests and values and help us navigate the most explosive issues of contention. The Center for Research on Judaism in Israel and North America will feature three components. Each is organic to this university. First, our applied research laboratory and go-to team will build upon our extraordinary collection of scholars who are world leaders in the critical scientific study of Judaism and Jewish life. Second, we are initiating a path-breaking MA program focused on contemporary Judaism in Israel and North America. Here, our teaching and mentoring expertise will cultivate visiting students from North America and the next generation of Israeli public leaders. That's one of my students who just walked in. Third, the center will launch our track to back channel framework for negotiating the most challenging issues of religious conflict. We are firm in our conviction that Barilan's legacy as Israel's tradition rooted university well positions it to embark on finding ways to directly and concretely impact the welfare of the Jewish people now and in the future. Regarding this novel track to format, I want to emphasize that the combination of Bar-Ilan's rigorous academic reputation with its strong ties to the widest spectrum of Jewish religious streams, both in Israel and in North America, is unparalleled in any other university or institute anywhere in the world. And I'm a graduate of university, and I love that institution and appreciate many things about it. But Bar-Ilan has a particular place, and that is not a competitive comment, but it's rather an acknowledgement. These attributes distinguish Bar-Ilan by highlighting its exceptional convening power. Here, factions and individuals that are public adversaries will engage in the hard work of negotiating workable solutions. Outside the glare of publicity and political jockeying, this environment will instill confidence in the participants as they will recognize that the negotiations are being facilitated by an institution that is not driven by underlying biased agendas. The complex relationship between the land of Israel, between land of Israel-based Judaism and that of Jews in other venues is not a completely new phenomenon. Both versions of the Talmud, the Yerushalmi, the Jerusalem, and the Bavli Babylonian record multiple legal dispensations attributed to consideration for the needs of temple pilgrims coming from or returning abroad. 
these legislative strands undermine the popular notion that as long as the ancient Jews were sovereigns in the land of Israel, the Holy Land was the exclusive center of Jewish religious and cultural life, and that only afterwards Babylon set out on the path that brought forth its great academies and the Babylonian Talmud. The truth is that for hundreds of years prior to the destruction of the Second Temple in 70 CE and hundreds after, Jerusalem and other locations in the land of Israel on one side and Babel on the other existed in parallel as distinct centers. Their relationship was certainly mutually beneficial, but it was also marked by notable tensions and disagreements on issues of religious ideals and values. Nobody denied the competition between Jerusalem and Babel, nor the fundamental variances between their religious and political constitutions. Rather, they recognized that it was in the interest of each side, and ultimately the Jewish people as a whole, that these two preeminent communities create viable tools for coexistence and cooperation. Today, we are once again privileged to live in a world in which the land of Israel has returned to its foremost place as a wellspring of Jewish spiritual and physical sustenance. At the same time, North America, the Pavel of our times, has emerged as a vibrant, populous Jewish civilization whose intellectual and cultural, po cultural power and creativity contribute profoundly to contemporary Judaism. The new center for research on Judaism in Israel and North America is set to engage this globalized Jewish world with wisdom, analytical sophistication, and determination to have an impact. Malcolm, you ready? Over the past century, a few individuals have stood out. Stood out, stand up, good. As international leaders who succeeded in impacting global Jewish life in profound ways, Malcolm Holmline is among the most outstanding. Already as a student at Temple and University of Pennsylvania, he set out on a career of service to the Jewish people through the establishment of the North American Jewish Student Network. Subsequently, he was founding director of the Jewish Community Relations Council of New York, and as the executive director of the Greater New York Council for Soviet Jewry, he played a commanding role in one of the most transformative Jewish movements of the 20th century. For the past 32 years, he has led, he has led the, the Conference of Presidents of Major American Jewish Organizations, a coalition that today contains 52 independent organizations that encompass a vast gamut of religious, ideological and political outlooks. He has worked with every US president from Carter to Trump and every Israeli prime minister from Begin to Netanyahu. He has been welcomed repeatedly not only in the White House and the Knesset, but in the Kremlin and in the palaces of Saudi Arabia, Dubai, and Morocco as well. Malcolm Holmline's unique ability to bring diverse groups to the table has not come at the cost of compromising his own personal religious and Zionist identity. Nor has his influence been predicated on grabbing the limelight. On the contrary, he is the preeminent Jewish diplomat who has succeeded in bringing together Jews of every stripe, as well as convincing countries and statesmen known publicly as irreconcilable enemies of the Jewish people in the state of Israel 
to change their policies in profound ways. His life of dedication, his public acuity, and his skillful utilization of back-channel formats, all in the service of, the Jew of Jewish life, are an inspiration to us as we set out on our new initiative. Tomorrow night, Bar-Ilan will confer Malcolm Honline with an honorary doctorate in recognition, in recognition of all he has done. And it is with great pleasure that I now invite him to join me for a focused discussion. Adam Furziger's introduction of uh, Malcolm Holmline. Now that we'll get into a uh, discussion, interview, Q&A in front of the crowd gathered for this historic it's event at Barilla. It's be able to walk away. <laughs> great. So uh, this is going to be a little less formal. We, we want to hear Malcolm's voice, so we're going to get started quickly. Uh, Let's start with the Soviet Jewry movement, a topic that brought you to the center of national Jewish leadership. It's also a subject which is particularly relevant here in a university setting, since so many of its most effective activists were themselves students. So start just by telling us how you got involved, please. Okay, uh, first of all, I wanna say what a, an honor it is to have this opportunity to be here for the launch and I hope to be able to help and participate in the future as you develop the Impact Center and to thank the President, Ian and others who are here, faculty members, especially uh, our good friend Ellie Groner and, uh, and Rabbi Berman, Dr. Berman and other honorees who are getting doctorates and the young people who have come and Nagels and, uh, and future students, and future students here. Um, and everyone else. I don't want to start naming because I have so many friends, including some from the Soviet Jewry days. I saw Jane and others who were involved with us from the, the days of the Soviet Jewry movement. And, and what was unique about it is that we created a movement, not an organization. And it encompassed people's lives. Soviet Jewry became a cause and I know people who lost their jobs because of it, because they devoted so much time to it that the bosses fired them. And they were willing to take, pay that price. People who worked day and night, not those of us whose names were in the press. And the first year when I came in 71 to start the conference in Soviet Jury against a lot of opposition at the time, but with the support of a few and a very limited budget, the staff of three of us, and we decided to do the first Solidarity Day because we knew that New York set the standard. That as long as New York did not have a centralized operation and it didn't have a central Jewish community relations council or, or council like every other major city, and because of its size and the opposition of national agencies who didn't want competition for a variety of other reasons which you can go into, there was this desire to avoid creating a sense of community in New York. And I remember one of the leaders top leaders of the American Jewish community at a meeting at the UJ Federation where I spoke about building community and stuff and he got up and he said, what community? There is no community in New York. And uh, thank God in the end he ended up on the board of the organization. But, but let, me, let me just say what, what brought me to it was honestly never again. That I know how strongly I was influenced by the Shoah. And from the time I was 10 or 11 years old, I got involved politically because I believed that only when Jews 
could have control of their own fate and future and understood the political process and got involved. As Avi even said, in World War II, Jews had influence in many places, but power in none. I knew that Jewish power was the key to our survival. And I remember my parents getting the telegram that my grandparents had been killed. And, uh, and as a young child, a very young child, uh, after the war when those yellow telegrams came and those of our neighbors and others who received them. And I know it made a lasting impact. So much of what I've done is to avoid another situation where Jews will live at the sufferance of others. The Jews will not determine their own fate. And Soviet Jewry gave us all. And I started when I was 14. I came to New York at 15 to meet with Jakob Birnbaum, who was then the legendary leader, who really a, a true hero of our people, who started the student struggle. And he, he wrote later about, you know, the skinny kid from Philadelphia who came. No longer true. But, uh, but it was really uh, an understanding that if we mean never again, and I believe it's a pledge every generation has to take anew, then you have to translate that into deed. It's not enough to talk about it. You have to act on it. So and Soviet Jewry became the, the vehicle for people to do it. So why was it when you started out that the so-called establishment was so uh, reticent about this stuff? Why did you have to fight so hard to convince both the uh, leaders of organizations and famous rabbis to support what you were doing? Well, each one was a different reason. There was one very famous rabbi, one of the Gedolei Hador, who could not believe that Hitler was worse than Stalin because he lived under Stalin. And he used to call me in to come and see him, or I would go and see him, and he would talk to me about what we were doing. And at one point he said to me, you know what, I see what, what you're doing because he believed that we endangered everybody by doing these public manifestations. And he said, I have only one request. Don't use Tashmi Kedusha. Don't wear Talitot and carry Sifrei Torah in the demonstrations. Because every time the Russians see them in Russia, they will associate it with the demonstrations against them. So I immediately adopted it. And with the exception of one rabbi, we stopped wearing the Talitot and people using it. It did not detract from the demonstration, but it enhanced the security of the Jews there. Others in the establishment associated with Kahana and with you know, violence and, and disruptive things. What made the difference was when the Jews in Russia put their lives on the line and, and, and uh, hijacked the airplane. That was the message. And everything that we did, contrary to others, was with the permission of Russian Jews. And I explained this to Lubavitcher Rebbe and others who talked to us about this. And when Brownover got out and we paid a $42,000 fine for him, uh, education fine, the highest ever, and his brother and I went to see the Rebbe about it. And the Rebbe had every right to be critical and have his own way because he did. The others didn't do. They just were critics. But he did. He did so much and continued to do so much in Russia that I respected anything and everything. And he came to respect to, to be what we were doing. And, uh, and I think that in terms of the establishment, it was a big leap for them. The idea that we took to the street when we did the first Solidarity Day, I can tell you honestly, almost no organization helped us. What we did is we leapfrogged them and took ads in the paper that said, eight great reasons not to march for Soviet Jews. And it was so chutzpahdik and it was so out of the box, and 50,000 people showed up. The next day, everybody else took credit for it. And, and somebody you know who worked for me at the time, I came in the morning and she was crying and I said, what's the matter? And she said, look, all the work we did, none of them really helped us. And now they're all taking credit. I said, you know what, the answer is 
that ultimately everybody knows who does and who doesn't do. Just by taking well, credit, not, they don't get a reputation. That actually is not completely accurate because we talked about the fact, and we've done both done some our different types of uh, looking into it. One group that didn't take credit, but actually probably deserved a lot of credit, was the government of Israel. And I'm wondering, how did that exactly transpire that there was this, I don't know if you call it a back channel, or what, what exactly went on there in those days that uh, didn't get into the newspaper? You're absolutely right, and this is another case where Israel doesn't get the credit it, does, it deserves. There would have been no Soviet Jewry movement in the United States were it not for the government of Israel. When we wanted to do the first Solidarity Day, we didn't have the money. And through the efforts of the Soviet Jewry Council, raised $75,000 for us, for us to be able to carry on and to do the activity until the rest of the establishment caught up. And eventually, you know, when I left, we had a big staff, a large budget. We were, had activities of every kind going on. But it was the Nativ office, it was great heroes of the Jewish people who had gone into the Soviet Union and many people here, I know, were approached and had shlichut, where we all went, my wife, who's here, and, uh, um, and she deserves applause because she's, she's the one who has to put up with all of it. Um, when we went, we got arrested in Russia in 1971. I'm going to hold off on that for one second because we're going to get but that. But many others there. did too, and many others, young people, put their lives in line, but did, without a second thought. And I'm talking about American Jews, not talking about Israelis. Young American Jews, young European wow. Jews, because they understood. And, and what we're missing today is that we don't have, our success is our failure. The fact that we saved Russian Jews, Ethiopian Jews, Syrian Jews, Yemeni Jews, Iraqi Jews, Iranian Jews, we're running out of Jews to save. And that was unifying things that, <laughs> that brought people together in the purest causes. They were, you know, not bound by politics. Soviet Jewry was the purest cause, and that's why we had blacks for Soviet Jewry, lawyers for Soviet Jewry, Hispanics for Soviet Jewry. One time, an 85-year-old man came to my office the day after Solidarity Day, and he brought me a $5 bill, and he said it was the first time in his life, born in America, that he ever did anything publicly Jewish. And he said, you changed my life, even at 85. And Rift Alexandrovich was in our house and said, that all of our suffering is worth it if we save one of your children. I believe save, Soviet Jews saved more of our children than we saved of theirs. Well, I think you know that that point about the sort of religious nature, not in the necessarily orthodox, but the religious spiritual nature of that movement is is a very important. And one. nobody cared who was orthodox or right. conservative. Right. We understood that if you want unity, Achdus is the one precondition to every great miracle that happened to the Jewish people. And Achdus is not attained by putting labels on people, by finding the common aspirations, the common hopes, the common drive that people have, and building on that. And it's not what differentiates us, it's what unites us, and that's when we succeed. So what was it like? Now, that was all fine and dandy until you became the uh, head of the Conference of Presidents and then you had to go meet these people from the Kremlin. You know, <laughs> you were doing great things. You were working for the Jewish people. You were bringing Achdu together. And then you find yourself in the post-Glasnost uh, era sitting in the Kremlin. What does a guy who, like you just said, got arrested as an activist uh, feel like when you're back in the Kremlin, you know, 15 years later, 20 years later? 
well, I will admit that the first time it was really surreal because for 25 years they wrote articles about this young couple that came, the Zionist provocateurs and the CIA agents, and named us. And for 25 years, you know, Secretary Schultz put me on the list for one of his delegations. They sent back to the list and they said, you want him, you stay home. And Al D'Amato did the same thing, put me on a Codell. They absolutely canceled the Codell visit until he took my name off the list. So for 25 years, they, they kept writing about it. It felt good because they kept saying we were a young couple. Uh, but, but then when, I mean, Glasnost happened, one of the first times, uh, uh, we had to go three times in one year in 1998 because they kept changing prime ministers. So we would go and finally we met with Chairman Mirden and uh, I got into a really heated exchange with him over an executive order. We went there because of Russia's transfer of dual-use technology to Iran. And it's hard to think that people today, but we, this was 20 years ago, we were already pressing this agenda, and I started in the early 90s with it. And uh, finally, Chairman uh, Mirden said, you want the executive order, I'll get it to you. And Al, Al Gore's uh, chief of staff was there that day trying to get it, and he had called me right before the meeting saying they turned him down. So Chairman Mirden said, okay, I'll, I'll take care of it, I'll get it to you. And everybody laughed, because you know, we didn't think it was serious. He said, but I want you to go and see Kokoshin, who's in charge of this in the Russia, the transfer of technology. So we go in the special lane, not 10 minutes, and we get there, and he's standing outside with a guy in uniform. I'll give you the short version. We go in, we sit down. He said, okay, here are your questions, and here are your answers. And he proceeded to tell us what we were going to ask and what his answers were, and read it straight from the thing. So they didn't bug anything. So all those stories about Russia being invasive, don't believe any of it. And then... Um, and he had this guy in uniform next to him, and I responded to, to, to Kokoshin, and I talked about what the dangers would be to Russia every day. You've got a big rest of the Muslim population. You can think of Iran, we'll transfer technology. And this guy in uniform went off like a rocket. He said, you are right, this is the greatest danger. Only we in Israel face this every day in our borders, et cetera, et cetera. So I said, excuse me, you weren't introduced to us. He said, my name is Vladimir Putin, head of the KGB. <laughs> Well, all of us were like gasping for air, going, whoa. And we ended up having an hour and a half, the most amazing discussion with him. He really got it. And I came to respect him, and I had many opportunities afterwards to meet with him. And uh, he's very shrewd, very smart. Don't underestimate him. I mean, this is a guy with an economy the size of Italy <clears throat> dictating what happens in the world today. So after the meeting, they served canopies. So I just sat in my chair. I didn't want to show my what didn't eat. And all of a sudden, I see a glass come and snap down like that in front of me. And I see the vodka being poured. And I look up, and it was Putin. And he said, you're going to have a drink with me. I said, well, it's okay. Uh, and I said, but I have to tell you that it's very strange for me. He said, why? I said, well, the last time I met you guys, you arrested me. <laughs> he said, when was that? I said, 1971. He said, where? I said, Moldova. He said, that's why we got rid of it. <laughs> and when I saw him a year later at a White House reception, you know, he scans the room. He saw me, went, Moldova? <laughs> and we met with him right afterwards downstairs. He said, I want you to know, for you, I'm keeping the generals waiting. And we couldn't figure out what he was talking about. And we came out, the head of General Motors and General Electric were sitting there waiting. <laughs> <laughs> so what's more difficult, uh, dealing with people like, Putin or uh, the, or the, the Saudi Arabians or, or, or running a, a, a conference of 52 organizations with religious, ideological diversity. You know, 
you know, the, the old Truman discussion of uh, running a, uh, excuse me, Wilson, running a university versus running in a government. So which one is uh, more challenging? Well, let me just say that I have a very high tolerance level because I really believe that I am blessed that God gave me the opportunity to do full-time what most people have to do part-time. That what most people can only do after they do their regular jobs, I have the privilege of doing all the time. And I believe I have to work to keep that privilege, and that's why I do 18-hour days. So my end of the contract and his end of the contract will be kept up. I never looked for a job in my life. Every job happened to me. So there was a course that was set, I think, for me to do, and, and it is a real bracha to be able to do that. So you put up with a lot of stuff. I'm not going to say it's easy being in the Conference of Presidents. You know, you, you, I tell people the way I keep them united is I give them a common enemy, me. And so they can all be angry at me, then they can stick together. The fact is that on 90% of the issues, we can find a common ground. And if you understand that most people, even if they come from extreme left, extreme right, whatever, stream, whatever, but most of them are motivated by a commitment to the Jewish people. There are some whose egos sometimes dictate and override any of those commitments. But if you understand that common thing, and if you understand, and I, all my life I worked in umbrella organizations because I really believe in Claudius Israel. I really believe that our strength lies in, in building together that the whole is far greater than the sum of the parts. And too much of the time we spend about differentiating what divides us. And the center should not talk about divide, what divides us. Focus first on what unites us, build on that. Then you can talk about what divides us. And, and I will just give you one example. Alexander Schindler was head of the reform movement when he was chairman of the conference. He instituted a rule that we buy by till today that we don't deal with any halachic issues. Because he said you can't operate on consensus on, the base, on, on religious issues. And that saved, in large part, the conference from being involved in these things that, that drive us apart. It doesn't mean we don't communicate, that I won't call Ellie or others to say, look, I want you to know there's a real concern in the community about this issue or that issue, <clears throat> and try to give them an objective assessment, and if we can, a suggestion. But as a conference, because you can't work on consensus when it comes to religious Issues. I, I want to take you, you know, but challenge I want to you a little bit on said. that, if you'll allow me. It's getting harder from what we're seeing, both from an internal Jewish perspective, but actually from what I see and read and, and people that, that speak to me, um, the Trump White House is a complicated place. It's complicated for many reasons that are obvious well, to all of us. What gave you a hint? Um, <laughs> but uh, let's start with the fact that uh, there are some very visible Orthodox Jews who have a very strong um, footprint in that White House. And I'm wondering, you as somebody who is outwardly identified as Orthodox, uh, you know, how do you navigate uh, the current uh, political uh, landscape? First of all, there are many more than you know. Many more. And there are people in one ministry, that I did, one department of the government that I went to, there are four Orthodox Jews sitting in top-level positions. Not everybody knows. You know some of them because it came from uh, some, uh, where you come from, but originally. But they um, they don't even know each other all necessarily. <laughs> I introduced them to tell them that they are, you know you can make a minion here and nobody knew. Uh, but Orthodox Jews have been in all governments, and, and, and just now it's a much larger number and much more visible uh, number of people and people you see walk around the White House or other places with the Yarmulke which was not necessarily the case uh, years ago. And as Yekis, we don't necessarily, that's not what we advocate, but, but what we 
believe I do wear yarmulke everywhere. When I go into Arab offices and heads of state, and people say to me, why do you wear yarmulke? Aren't you worried? Aren't you worried? You know what? I tell them they're more worried about something happening to me than I am. But the thing they say to me is, and I ask them, why, why me? You know, I wear a yarmulke. You know my political views. You know what I do. And they say, it's exactly why. Because you know who you are. And we want to do, deal with people who know who they are because you'll be consistent in your responses and your actions. He said, the rest of them, they don't know who they are. And that's uh, something that we have to, to build on. And it's not just whether you're, what fraction you're from. But if you're consistent, it's the legitimacy of the arguments, it's the accuracy of the case you make, it's the facts you present. Every Arab leader that I have met, I met Assad for three hours a month before the fighting. And the first hour, he just questioned. We were sitting alone, not a guard, not a glass of water, nothing. And he just started, he was probing me, and I knew it. And when he saw that I knew what I was doing, he kept saying to me, how did you know that? How did you know that? The second hour, he started telling me the most intimate secrets of his life and about his family, about his father, about other things. And they see that if you are a reliable source, if you are somebody that they can talk to in confidence, one of the things they say is, we know you never leak. And I have never in the, all the years leaked any of the stories. That's why. And people say to me, why don't you publish? Why don't you publish? Because it's more important to me for the long term to be able to continue to maintain the confidence of the people we deal with. That Presidents of the United States have told me the most incredible things that I could have made a lot of headlines with. But what is the value? So one morning you get a headline, the next day you have no access. So it's very important, I mean, to, to lessons that we have learned over the years about how do you deal with power. You respect power, you don't worship power. Power is not an end in itself, but if I, I can just say, to me Jewish power is sacred. That's the lesson from the Shoah. To me, Jewish power is like a muscle. If you exercise it right, you build it up. If you abuse it, you destroy it. And that's true of a state, and it's true of independent communities. We are not equal, obviously. We don't have an air force. We don't have an army. We don't. But the partnership of the two, recognizing each other's unique abilities. When the National Security Council of Israel did a study and said that the, that the diaspora jury represented a unique asset, a unique strategic asset, in, uh, see, he's getting scared. I'm going to come talk about him. <laughs> a unique strategic. I, I don't scare you, see, that's. Uh... <laughs> Maybe we should change that. Um, <laughs> thanks. A unique strategic asset. And you don't know how many foreign leaders said, if we, only we had a diaspora like Israel does. Because it is a, a powerful tool. And if they learn to respect it, if we learn to deal with it together and use that power to build up that muscle, then. We all benefit from it. So I'm going to ask you one more question, but in the meantime, I'm going to ask the audience if we have time for a few uh, comment, uh, not comments, but really questions. But before we get to that, I, could you say where where do you think is the is the biggest problem right now? Is it about ignorance between Israel and America? Is it about uh, lack of interface in a, in, a, in a way that can be productive. What is going on that even Brett Stevens is worried about American Jews feeling alienated and Israeli Jews uh, don't really get it as far as America is concerned? Where, where do you Yes. And look, I think that all of those are challenges of today. And it's not on one side or the other. It's a collective challenge that we have. Ignorance is rampant. And that means even those who are unfortunately yeshiva educated don't know how to answer when they get to campus. Even those who have gone to some of the best schools, we've tested it. 
we, we have a an, an huge problem of assimilation. You know, when the Bnei Yisrael came out of oh, yeah. Mitzrayim, they said chamushim alu, that, that uh, they, they came out armed. But the other Mepharshim say, no, 20% came out, that 80% had assimilated. Today, we're seeing that every day. Every day, we're losing hundreds and hundreds of Jews, young Jews in particular, every single day. That's the biggest danger. And you can't communicate with them in the same way as we did before. You have to learn how to use social media. And often they communicate in 140 letters. You can't talk about history in 140 letters. You can't give these difficult and complex issues. You mentioned globalization in your remarks. We were the first globalized people. Benjamin Mitudela, how did you have a diamond industry? How did you have all these things? It was because Jews had connections around the world. And yet we're falling behind on the whole issue. Second. It's an age of indifference. People don't want to be bothered with history. They don't have patience for history. They want food now, peace now, everything now, without any contemplation about what's it. You can't communicate in 140 characters these complex issues. So we have to look at, at the, the challenge that we have today is a generation that says, and this drives me crazy, it is what it is. I hear that all the time from young people. And I tell them, no, it isn't. It is what you make of it. It is what it is. It means that you have no power. You can't influence the outcome that you've given up. And we have to change that. We have to get empower young Jews to know. And that Soviet Jewry did that. It empowered young Jews. The movement for Syrian Jews empowered young Jews. They drove the movements. Today, we put them down. We, we, they're marginalized in large respects in our community. And we have to find uh, ways to, to capitalize, no matter what their political views are. I believe in the smorgasbord approach. We should have something for everybody that draws them to the community. And once they're there, they will find broader expression. They're not looking for the edifice complex. They're not looking for fancy building. They're looking for content. They want to know what it means. And you know, we can condemn all of those who stray away. We've got to think about why are they straying? What is it that we have failed to provide? What, what have we not done in their education, and you can't just send kids on birthright, and I'm a big supporter of birthright, at the age of 18 and ignore them the first 17 years of their lives and think they're going to be okay. It's not Israel's responsibility to make up for our failures. Israel's the inspiration. Israel is what unites us. I still believe Israel is a positive value, and for, for most, the problem is that we, we should try to shun, uh, sh uh, shuttle off some of our failures onto Israel to say, oh, they're responsible for the alienation of our youth. No, they're not. We're responsible. And if there are differences with Israel, we have to deal with them. I do believe there's a lack of sensitivity here. I don't think that people take enough into concern what diaspora, how they view it, what are the issues that, that we could work on together and find solutions to work on it. But too many people on all sides have political agendas of other agendas, which they overlay and overlay and overlay. You can't even see the problem anymore because it's all obfuscated. So we have to, and I hope this center will help, look at things in a new way, to bring back our youth, to, to challenge them, to give them ways that they can find expression within the community and in the larger community, find causes for them where they can. And if it's, it's domestic causes, it can be international causes. I do believe that I saw it with the Iran 13, how many young people were so hungry for an opportunity to express their concern for the Jewish people by coming out and demonstrating and working. And, and even foreign governments, you know, we got 66 governments to come and intervene. I, I ran the campaign around the world because obviously Israel couldn't. And those 10 Jews, three of them were marked for death and 10 for long prison sentences at 13. All of them are home with their families now. Everyone. First time since the revolution when they didn't execute Jews. It was the first time we found out about it in advance. But because people heard it and took to the cause, and we got non-Jews to be out front and others, so it wasn't a question of the, being just a Jewish event. 
but, but that we made it a real universal event, that even the Iranians, and I met with Zarif, I had dinner in his home, and, uh, uh, and he's a real chameleon, and, and uh, it's a subject for another time, but then we negotiated with it, and finally came to the point where I said, if you do it, I promise you we won't rub your face in it. And one person afterwards criticized me a lot, but he didn't know what was the real background and what was really happening. But because we made that promise, they let those people go. And that's the greatest reward. Who can look at a better reward than all of you who helped save Jews, who helped Russian Jews and Ethiopian Jews and Syrian Jews, all of them, who had been written off to Jewish history? We've seen the miracle of Kibbutz Goliath in our lifetime. How many people really appreciate it? How many of us think that we saw the prophetic vision taking place, or do we only complain, only 65,000 years, or only 35,000? Think about what has changed over this, this small time, and this little country made it all possible. We can take credit, but if it weren't for the state of Israel, I, you know, I arranged the Boschewitz to go to the mission when we had that window of opportunity in Ethiopia for 48 hours, and together with the chairman of the conference, I think it was Shoshana Cardin then, we went to see General Scowcroft at the White House. He was the uh, chief of staff at NSC, I think, of the, uh, under Bush, and he turned me down. And, I, and then, as he turned me down, he got a call from the White House, from the president, saying to come. And he started to walk out, and I told everybody, just sit. And I said to him, as he walked out, just tell me, ask the president one thing for me. Will he, can he afford to see the pictures of dead Ethiopian Jews like we see the pictures of dead uh, Iraqi Kurds on the front page of the New York Times that morning because you said no? And he came back 10 minutes later and he said yes. Well, and I called Rudy Boschewitz, who was skiing in Vail. I didn't tell him anything. I just said, will you be in, e in Ethiopia this weekend? He said yes. I said, that's Naseb Nishma. He didn't ask me any questions that weekend. He was there, negotiated the release, and that made the operation possible. Mm -hmm. That's what happens when Jews, but it was because we had a state of Israel. It's because we had a state of Israel that could carry it out. So now, uh, that's it's very gratifying for us here in Israel, but us Israelis are not shy, so I think a few of them want to ask you a few questions. Do we have time for, for a question or two? Yeah. Um, part of the price of the doctorate is any questions. No problem. So it's free, it's free game. So, if anybody has any questions for Malcolm, now's your chance. Yes. Shimon Ochayon. Shimon Ochayon, the director of the Dance Center in Balilan University. What do you think about the future of Jewish education in the United States? It's another evening that we have to spend together. I'm not worried about the Jewish future alone. I'm worried about the Jewish present in Jewish education. Um, thus, unless kids are getting a Jewish education, you know, the afternoon school, which uh, I taught, only it's how I paid for my tuition through college, was at least an alternative, a viable place where they got some identification, some knowledge base, and they would come. It is disappearing rapidly. So we don't have anything other than the day schools, which are wonderful and extremely important, but for the bulk of Jewish kids are not getting any Jewish education. That's why I said that we have to think in a much more creative way. You know that many years ago I tried to start 
a newsletter for high school students called the Jewish Highlight. We published a daily alert every day together with the Jerusalem Center for Public Affairs. And thank you. I appreciate that, so the rest will subscribe now. It's free. <laughs> it's free. You can get to. And, uh, and I try to do a weekly high school thing. And I brought college uh, Jewish kids from the public schools, yeshivot, and, element and uh, private schools. Those sessions were the most exciting and dynamic thing. And they created a newsletter that appealed to students because they knew what would appeal to them. I, two years, I could not find one foundation that would fund it. Nobody cared. When we published it, the biggest problem we had was schools weren't using it because the teachers couldn't teach it. So we had to do a week before, provide them with all the answers and worksheets so they could teach what was in the, in the daily, in the weekly, the, the high school alert, it was called a highway. And that's the problem. We, you know, we have had attempts at curriculum, we've had attempts at other things, some really valiant ones. But there has to be a whole new approach. And part of it is that we have to go to where they are, which is at the end of the computer screen or their iPhone. We have to find creative ways. Find me something that teaches a six-year-old or a seven-year-old about what's going on. Because they see the television reports. They see the news reports. Whoever tells them that that picture of an Israeli killing a, a kid or an adult, they absorb those images. I brought together 10 psychiatrists and psychologists, and I asked them, what do we do about it? And their bottom line was, come back in 10 years and we'll show you the results. So, I, I just want to say, this is really important to me. The Catholic Church says, give me a kid till he's six, you can have him the rest of their lives. We have to start, not just with high school students or college students, we have to start with them in elementary school and younger, provide them with positive images about Israel, talk to them about Israel. You'd be shocked how much of the views that they shape, that they ultimately express, are shaped in those early years. And we don't do it, we've ignored them. We have to look at every segment. You know, I have tried for years, since Prime Minister Sharon, to get Israel to undertake a World Jewish Singles event here. To, there are a million Jewish singles in America, a million Jewish singles here, tens of thousands in Europe who will never meet a Jewish maid. Bring them here, build Jewish families. So his answer to me was, oh, you'll have Yerida. I said, you'll have Aliyah. <laughs> How do you know? Make Israel attractive and we'll keep them here. But they'll find jobs, they'll find maids them. But if not, at least you'll have Jewish families. Look at the, what potential we have of bringing them and having tens of thousands, and they'll pay their own way here to come. And in every university, in every place, have programs for them, have things that they can attend and meet each other. There are so many creative ideas that are possible. And it doesn't, it's not just about money. It's about the will and the interest and the intent to do it. And I believe we can make a real difference, change things, make Judaism more attractive, make what, and not just about Saras. I believe strongly in the March of the Living. I participate almost every year. But that can't be the essence. It's that when they come to Israel and they celebrate Israel, we have, that's why this week's Parsha, we're talking about about the mitzvah of simcha on Yom Tov, that you have to, and they say it's the hardest mitzvah to, to fulfill, is v'samachto b'chagecha. It's really infusing our celebrations with joy and celebration. That's what we have to do with Jewish education and Jewish life. It's not to tell them only the divisions and the fights and the tsars, but tell them the victories, the celebration, the joy. Who tells them about this, the discoveries in Ir David? Things that every single one of them, and at Minarota Kotel and all over, every one of them validates the Tanakh. Every single one of them. You have problems with the moon, you have problems with kids believing, show them a rock with a menorah carved into it. Show them the other things that have been discovered. But who talks to people about it? I ask them all the time, I ask them at a good convention, how many of you talk to your kids Friday night about this? You want to inspire them? Look at the great things that you have to inspire them, and we don't use them.
Gary, Gary. I'm, I'm in the field, or have been. We have priced ourselves out of the market, and this is a terrible, terrible thing. I know it because I'm Canadian, so in Canada it's become a big scandal. In the States I don't know anymore. But that is our problem. People will not pay the money. I agree. And you have a president of university who has to struggle with this every day. You have two presidents of university who have to struggle with it. But I believe, honestly, there's enough money in the Jewish community. The problem is it's in their pockets. So we have to get it them to take it out of their pockets. And instead of wasting and giving hundreds of millions of dollars to universities, it's very nice, but you've got to set priorities. We have not made giving this money a, no, no, I meant secular universities. I didn't mean Jewish universities. It's nice, I want to see Jewish names on hospitals, on everything else, you know, because Jews could get on these boards that they were, they were excluded from. But, but I'm talking about giving to Jewish universities, Jewish schools, Jewish education, that if we have to make it a priority and make it more of a status issue that people understand that they can get as much covered in a day, and, and we have to start setting standards for people who are honored in our community, who are described as philanthropists and other things, and they don't give anything to Jewish causes. It's wonderful right. to give to Jews. I want. I believe people should give to everything. And you know, we saw that that right after this uh, thing about Shavuos, we see charity comes up in in the parsha. We believe that we have our responsibility for everybody. We have a universal responsibilities to take care of people. But first, aniyecha come first. And when you have hundreds of thousands of Jews living behind, below the poverty level here in Israel, when we have unit schools that cannot survive because the parents can't pay tuition, no Jewish school should, Jewish student should be denied a Jewish education because their parents can't afford it. Okay. And we as a collective responsibility have to take it on. Uh, hello, my name is Yitzhak Hildesheimer. Really? I I would like to ask uh, Malcolm Holline, would you agree to a statement that says that there is Jewish anti-Semitism in the United States? And I will explain. Uh, last November, Hirschwein, I was in LA for the GA. Uh, beforehand, I spent uh, Shabbat and Sunday with my cousin in a suburb of LA. Uh, on Shabbat, we went to certain the Knesset, certain shul, certain synagogue, whatever you want to call it. On Sunday morning, when I was going to go to the same Bet Knesset, my cousin called me from the window, don't go there, this Bet Knesset, this synagogue is closed on Sunday. Not only on Sunday, every day, except for Shabbat. It's not because of lack of minyan or minyan, but because the neighbors of this Bet Knesset, of this shul, most big majority of them Jewish, objected to the building of the Bet Knesset, of the shul, because of noise, because of smoke, because of traffic, and so on. And it was agreed with the municipality to open this synagogue only for Shabbat. And my cousin, who is Shariach there, told me that this situation exists in many, many suburbs all over the United States. Objection and most of the objection comes from uh, the Jewish community, uh, or often comes from the Jewish community. But you know what the difference between the Jew and the non-Jew? The non-Jew says, Jews, I can't stand them. Levine, great guy. Cohen, wonderful partner. 
The Jews said, I love Jews. Cohen, that bum, I can't stand that. <laughs> so every community, you know, has these kind of, of the differences. But it's part of it is ignorance. They don't know who we are. And the feeling that Orthodox Jews moving into a neighborhood because you put up an Arab will change the quality of life, will change the ter determine uh, the, uh, the nature uh, of the neighborhood, when in fact it's never true. It's never true that the, just the presence of certain people changes the neighborhood. It could be their conduct, you can have other things that happen. So there, a lot of it has to do with education, to reach out. And ultimately, if you have to go to the courts, you go to the courts, but that should be the last, it's the last resort. Um, that should be the last resort of the... Uh, I think it's on. <laughs> within our community, not on without. So first, you have to reach in before you reach out. First, we have to reach in and build the bridges within our community. And that often takes, why is it that Chabad is the fastest growing movement on campuses? Sure. That's the way, you, no, but you give people a warm environment, you give them, you give them a warm environment, you give them a welcome thing. They say that they can maintain contact, studies not done by Chabad, by others, maintain contact with the rabbi or the rebbitzin for many years, much longer than, let's say, a hill director or others. That's what they want. The young people, they want to have the relationship. And many of those older people carry the animosities and the, the fears from the past to today because we don't do enough to break them down. And to we have to confront them, but show them that they're not true. Okay, I want to thank uh, Malcolm. That's it. That's it. That's it. That's it. Thank you, Malcolm. Thank you, Adam, for the interesting interview. And the which Hatzlacharaba on the launching of the new Impact Center. Very exciting. And uh, Professor Zaban's initiative. Uh, it's the, the first, it's one of the first impact cent new impact centers. There's right now, how many do we have in total? 11. And this one is 11. Yeah, but going back a few years. This is the 11 one. The 11. Exactly. Okay, Kane Yerba. Thank you very much, everyone. That was uh, Michael Jesselson. That's the conclusion of the program. Uh, Adam Furziger uh, interviewed Malcolm Honline as part of the uh, as part of the um, uh, program uh, for the founding of the Impact Center. We've been talking about. And. Um, we now have an opportunity, uh, now that we've heard uh, uh, Malcolm Honline and we've heard about the uh, launch of the new Impact Center for the Study of Judaism in Israel and North America, we have an opportunity to speak with some of the people that are um, among the leadership in the world of academia at Bar-Ilan University. And we start with Dr. Tova Genzel, who is director of the Midrashah at Bar-Ilan. Shalom, shalom. Welcome to the Nahum Siegel Network. From Israel, actually from Tel Aviv, to the Nachum Siegel Network. Greatly appreciate you joining us. Uh, we know about the, uh, and we've discussed uh, so much about Barilan University and the incredible uh, impact that it has in so many areas. Uh, tell us about your Midrashah at Barilan. 
Well, the Midrashan Barilan is a very, I think, unique Midrashan. It's the biggest Midrashan in the world. It has about 800 students every year. Uh, most of the students are female, most of the majority, but we also have some male and co-ed classes in the evening. But imagine a big building that has a huge Beit Midrash with, um, at every hour in the day that you would come into the Midrashah, you would see girls sitting in chavrusas, learning with learning partners, and choosing what they decide to learn on an uh, and learn as far as Torah knowledge, meaning it can be Bible study, it can be Jewish philosophy, it could be Talmud, it can be really anything that any woman who's on Bar Ilan campus feels that this is what's right for her. And it's located in the center of Bar Ilan, and we really believe that while you grow in academic um, in the academic setting, it's also the right time to grow in Torah. And uh, it's a very, very broad program. It has programs for secular students. It has programs for women that have been in many midrashot before and want to now do their doctorate, doctorate in Talmud or in the sciences, and continue studying their Torah. So there's really a big range of student body, of lecturers, and of types of learning. Has this been like this from the beginning of Bar Ilan? Has there always been an emphasis on Torah study the way that we see it today? And has there always been an opportunity for women, even in the early days of the university, to pursue this type of academic study? So I think the founders of Bar Ilan had imagined a university that definitely incorporated Torah studying with it. But you, and we can all assume that Torah learning for women was quite different, um, you know, many years ago. So this Midrashah was actually built in the beginning of the 80s, and I think it was one of the first Midrashot, one of the first places that enabled women to really learn Torah. I will say honestly and openly that there wasn't a Beit Midrash, meaning if you think of how women's learning Torah was at the end of the 70s when the building was planned, or at the beginning of the 80s, then um, I don't think people really imagine women sitting half a day studying Torah, uh, devoting so much time while they were doing their BA, MA, or doctorates, or even afterwards, um, to study Sugiyot in the Talmud, for example. So this was really um, something that had to change. We have now a new Beit Midrash. We have a new auditorium. Uh, the classes were fixed in a way that they're uh, representable also now for 2018. A high technology was put in. So the short answer to your question is yes. Everyone always envisioned Torah. Was it done the way it is today? I guess not. You're one of the first, and we're speaking to Dr. Tova Ganzel, you're one of the first of Nishmat's Yoetzet Halacha, Yoetzot Halacha, I should say. Uh, is there some type of formal program like that in Bar Ilan? Are they encouraged to... Uh, to have a formal program that does, in fact, uh, conclude with some type of degree? So the Midrashan Bar-Ilan supplements the, degree, the degrees that are given in all the departments in Bar-Ilan, in the sciences, in the humanities, in the Jewish studies. So it's really, uh, you know, the, the women have an opportunity to study anything they'd like. We do have intense halachic classes. Uh, the most prominent one is given by Rabbi Aharon Katz, who's actually the uh, acting rabbi of the city of Ramatgan. It is nothing like the Nishmat program. The Nishmat program is unique um, and has its own features, 
but but we have many authors who graduated the Nishmat program and come to continue learning by us just because they want to continue learning Talmud or continue learning Halakha and make that part of their daily schedule even for years on. We emphasized early on in this broadcast how in the part of the community that I'm from, for instance, uh, Barilan seems to be um, uh, the university of choice for those Americans from, again, from the community I come from, uh, who want to pursue a, um, a collegiate experience, but under Jewish auspices in Israel. Um, is this is this the midrashah part of uh, of Bar Ilan attractive to those who are not native Israelis? Uh, definitely. First of all, we have a special evening program on Sunday evenings in English, catered to these students, and many of them choose to come on Aliyah, some choose to just learn in Israel. It's actually called Torah and Challenge. Uh, it was named <laughs> by the American student body. Uh, the midrashah smells from the crockpots that no, no average Israeli knows what a crockpot is, but the <laughs> Americans all know, and they put these cholent ones, the vegetarian and the flasic, and the every Sunday. And when I tried to move the day just for logistic reasons, they told me, no, but it's supposed to resemble Sunday in America. <laughs> I said, fine, you'll have your Sundays in America. So there's a big crowd every Sunday night. You can follow us on Facebook and see, usually put up pictures, and then you also see that the lecturers of Sunday night, me as a born in Israel and Israeli, um, usually don't know any of these lecturers. The students bring them. They usually are the rabbim or the women uh, who taught them in the yeshivot in America who came on the hour, who happened to be here recruiting or whatever it is. Um, and then they come Sunday night. So that's like the special program we have for the student body. It's an excellent opportunity to meet and to see who lives in Givat Shmuel and be part of that Givat Shmuel community, too. In addition to that, we really try to accommodate these students um, with the Hebrew classes, with the tests. Uh, we make sure everyone has always uh, has a place for Shabbos. We, we, we really try to be a home in, in the middle of the campus for all our students, but especially for the students from abroad. Dr. Tova Genzel, director of the Midrashad Bar Ilan, you must meet a tremendous number of students who are really motivated when it comes to uh, Jewish studies. Must give you an amazing feeling. Can I tell you a, sm a small secret? Sure. Um, it's hard for all of us to keep up our Jewish learning Torah studies. So many of the students I meet kind of tell me, listen, I've been there, done that, what now? So it's not always the case, but I think that's part of our mission, to make sure that it's something that follows us and is part of our lives, also when we go out to the real world, and we're not part of the Jewish education systems that we were when we grew up. In. Understood. Just one of the reasons why it's such an important part of the university. Thank you so much for joining us. It's much appreciated. Shalom, shalom. You're welcome. Good night. <clears throat> Dr. Tova Genzel, Director of the Midrashad Barilan University. We are uh, wrapping up our uh, <coughs> coverage of the presentation that was made earlier today, just a few minutes ago, concluded in Israel at Bar-Ilan University with uh, Malcolm Honline as we speak about the brand-new Impact Center for the Study of Judaism in Israel North America. We're hoping that he'll join us later on in this broadcast. Uh, there's a Bar-Ilan alumni on the phone, and that's uh, Yehuda Shilat, who is with us live via telephone. Yehuda, shalom. Welcome to the Nahum Siegel Network. Do we have him here? All right, we will... Hopefully have him join us in just a couple of minutes or so, or maybe even less here in just a moment at the Nahum Siegel Network. Uh, today's a big day. Everyone out there in our network uh, surroundings uh, knows about the uh, special place Malcolm Honline has here at NSN. And to those who are not familiar, who are tuned in today for the first time, we can tell you that he is featured each and every Friday with us at the Nahum Siegel Network. 
and it gives us an opportunity each week to explore uh, the uh, events of the week, the news of the week. And today, a day in advance of his um, honorary doctoral uh, being given to him, um, uh, he had an opportunity to sit down with the leadership of bar University and discuss the brand new uh, Impact Center for the Study of Judaism in Israel and North America. And now I believe we have bar alumni uh, Yehuda Shilat with us. Yehuda, are you there? Shalom. Yes, hi. How are you? I'm here. Thank Baruch Hashem. So you are you are the one representative in this hour that's being described as a Bar Ilan alumni. With that in mind, if you would share with us the journey, uh, tell us about uh, where you come from and how uh, your stay at Bar Ilan began. Well, I actually came from Highland Park, New Jersey. I made out yeah about uh, seven, eight years ago, more or less. Huh. Um, part of the whole process, you know, is like everyone else uh, that grew up in uh, modern Orthodox uh, high school, went to high school, went to yeshiva afterwards, and then uh, it's always, always the love of Israel really pulled me, to, gravitated me towards uh, this land and wanting to stay here. So uh, pretty much joining Bar Ilan and taking the, the, really the decision to study there was uh, natural for me, coming from the background that I came from. So your uh, your uh, decision to make Aliyah was an independent one as opposed to one that was uh, together with parents or other family members? Yes, absolutely. My parents are still in, uh, in the United States. Uh, does does that move on your part include Army service or uh, some type of commitment uh, to public service in Israel? Yeah, that's right. I actually did do the Army in the middle um, after my yeshiva. I was there for about two and a half years in uh, the Netzachihuda Battalion, the religious unit. You're familiar, obviously, from the background you just mentioned. You're familiar with with what we know about dual curricula, about uh, you know the yeshiva system here, and what we're familiar with. How would you describe Bar Ilan uh, when we when we think about just that? When we think about you know Jewish auspices, yet a very important and distinguished you know college education. Uh, how would you describe what it's like in Bar Ilan? School. It really, uh, it's kind of a very comfortable fit in terms of someone like the, coming from the background that I came from. Um, in terms of uh, really having the great balance of you know the Torah and the academic studies on a very, on a, what would I would consider a high level more or less. I actually started uh, college in the back in Queens uh, hmm. between yeshiva, a small close space off semester, and uh, it was actually really funny how seriously the the learning was there and also being able to continue that. Um, in at the same time learning towards a, a degree at the same time. So it really is a very comfortable fit. It's interesting because one of the themes that I mentioned for our purposes today as we broadcasted the, the uh, Bar Ilan um, uh, a ceremony, uh, the lecture that took place, was that uh, you know I, I would think the majority of people who are from communities like mine uh, who want to go to university in Israel are attracted uh, to Bar Ilan, and you can uh, certainly say and... Uh, and um, and uh, confirm for us that both the uh, uh, the secular academics and the Jewish academics are uh, are are um, are uh, above par, so to speak. That they are <laughs> that they are very worthwhile. Both departments very absolutely. worthwhile. Of course, that's what I couldn't agree more. Especially, um, you know, I, coming to Israel, also going to uh, spending a few good years only in yeshiva. Um, you really have you really kind of miss that kind of background. And I think Barla definitely does support that as well. And in terms of getting a, a real university education, I think it, it has one of the best uh, in the country. It's not in the world, that's for sure. What do you say to those students who 
might be considering this move but are a little worried about the Hebrew language and that type of adjustment. Any advice? So, 100%, I think Barlan is definitely the place to be. I know they have many very good um, programs that are really just in English. Um, aside from that, I do a degree in, uh, in Hebrew. My Hebrew is fine, but still, writing is still not my... I'm not 100% comfortable. I'm not ready there, but the professors really understand the background that we're coming from, and they let you write your papers in English very often, and uh, they really do cater to all the, all the special uh, kind of requests that you may have, especially someone coming from a, a place that's really not used to the culture and the language. Hmm, interesting. So they really cooperate, to say the least. They want to see you Absolutely. succeed, no matter what it takes, I guess. Yeah, and there's really that really good uh, that bond between uh, student teacher where they'll really do as much as possible to uh, make sure that you uh, have an easy process, uh, you know, really being incorporated in the university. Being alone, um, you know, uh, without you know parents uh, in Israel at the time. Um, so, what type of uh, uh, of housing situation were you in? Were you living on campus? Did you have uh, a place near to campus? How did it work for you? So, both of them I got married about uh, two years ago. Mm. Um, so, I live together with my wife. We live in a in a shuv in the Shomron. Um, so, it really is. Uh, so, it's pretty much where we come back to. My uh, wife is also in the Barilan as well. Um, so, it's really convenient. Us going together to university uh, it really is very comfortable for the, the both of us. <laughs> very cool. Yehuda Shilat, originally from New Jersey. And now uh, living in Israel, and as you heard, a Bar Elon alumni, uh, a very proud one, and one who is certainly recommending it for those who are uh, uh, wondering if it might Absolutely. be good for them. Yehuda Tadaraba, thanks so much. Best regards, and thanks for joining us. Thank you so much. Thanks. Yehuda Shilat in Israel. Uh, quite a day for us as we uh, highlight Bar Ilan University through the, um, uh, through the program that uh, went on there earlier today, uh, Malcolm Honline who's with us here at the Nachum Siegel Network on a weekly basis. Tomorrow we'll receive an honorary doctorate degree from Bar Ilan. And today, uh, the lecture, the Q&A, the, in many ways, the um, directives given by Mr. Honline to the American Jewish community and the world Jewish community through his words, he had some pretty strong statements, to say the least, um, it, uh, was part of the, uh, the launching of the brand-new Impact Center for the Study of Judaism in Israel and North America. And now we have a, a, a chance as you've been listening to uh, speak with the uh, professors, researchers, alumni, uh, department heads for just a few minutes and get a perspective on what's happening at Bar-Ilan, what we here in the U.S. and around the world need to know about Bar-Ilan University. Um, those of you looking for information, the American Friends website is a great place to begin, afbiu.org. That's American Friends of Bar-Ilan University, afbiu.org. And uh, there you'll find information about the history and obviously the current situation and the, uh, the goals and the, um, uh, all the different uh, traditions of Bar-Ilan University. We uh, strongly recommend everybody get more familiar with it. And I am told that uh, Alan Zeckelman, who is chairman of the board of the American Friends of Bar-Ilan University, is with us live via telephone. Mr. Zeckelman, are you with us? Uh, I am here. Shalom, shalom, and I guess I'll say mazal tov. Why not? After all, Bar-Ilan is celebrating a pretty big day. They've added another impact center on the campus, this one for the study of Judaism in Israel and North America. What did you think of the proceedings uh, at Bar-Ilan University today? I was pretty much blown away. 
especially by Malcolm Holmline's uh, speech, but in particular, though, uh, the wonderful words by Adam Verzinger before about the status of, uh, uh, the, let's say, dichotomy between uh, diaspora Jewry, a.k.a. American Jewry, and, and Israeli Jewry. But maybe it really isn't such a dichotomy. It's more of a uh, something to work on to show more about the similarities and the differences and to focus on, on the unity. Of course, I guess people do use buzzwords like achdut or achdus all the time. We have to make it real now, especially during this time of sphera when we can kind of focus on that. But um, it was a very, very interesting presentation, and, and this impact center couldn't come at a better time, and it's incredibly important uh, just today or in recent days. You know, there have been articles by uh, Bronfman, about uh, what he thinks needs to be done, et cetera. But pe- people are speaking up, but we shouldn't chastise people. We, 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 need, to, we need to bring people in with a warm hand. And, and I think that that's a very important thing that can be done and must be done because the unity of the Jewish people and the future of the state of Israel and, uh, uh, is really dependent upon this. We cannot have fractures in, in our community. Amen to that. Alan Zeckelman's with us, Chairman of the Board of American Friends, bar University. You know, one of our themes constantly, and something I've been talking about for decades, is bridging the gap between Israel and the diaspora. It, it is unique, and, and remarkably, uh, I don't know how much of it on purpose and how much uh, you know, uh, by accident, so to speak, it has happened, but over these decades, it's incredible the role that Bar-Ilan has played in just that, in bridging the gap between uh, Israel and and uh, diaspora jury, specifically the United States. Do you get the feeling as you sit in your position that there is this incredible back and forth, a real corridor of activity between the two? Well, um, I, I, I feel that the gap isn't as big as people think it is. Mm. I do believe that Bar-Ilan has, has done a lot. Uh, you know, the Lookstein Center is one a great example, um, fostering development of, of, of diaspora jury educational efforts has been tremendous. Uh, you know, they've impacted uh, uh, religious schools that have been like, uh, Solomon Schechter-type schools at one Type of level, uh, modern Orthodox schools is another. Um, it, 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 Bar-Ilan campus, if you're to come visit it and you look around at the student body, it's not filled with a whole bunch of uh, only kippahs through God wearing people. It, 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 it's filled with the tr- a true cross section of, of, of Israel society. And I don't know if that's fully appreciated outside of Israel, even outside of uh, Bar-Ilan's campus. And, and, and because it's such an integrated and, and reflective place of, of the bulk of Israel society, it creates an environment where you can come up with ideas that solve problems, and, and, and that's why it's so wonderful this Impact Center is here, and, and uh, that, that back and forth that goes on will translate itself to something that could be taken beyond the campus and to the rest of the Jewish people. Yeah, I guess unity begins when people are under one roof, whether that's symbolic or literal, and in the campus is... Uh example, as you just mentioned, it's proudly proclaimed on the website of the American Friends. Bar-Ilan is, in fact, a microcosm of the state of Israel, bringing together every type of person who's in Israel, and that's a very right. important including, place. Including to Arabs. Right. Including Arabs. Correct. That's a Absolutely. very, very yeah, important... I mean, we, we, we are here with, with uh, Arabs. Why not? I mean, it's the reality of the state of Israel. And, and, uh, and we are here with people who are not respectful don't happen to yet understand what the Shabbat means from a right. Jewish perspective. But does that mean that it's a problem? No. 
Many of them, though, come here and for the first time have exposure. Like I was visiting the ladies, the midrashah today, and, and, and spoke with some wonderful young ladies who uh, didn't really know much about their own Judaism, yet they live in the state of Israel. It, 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 it's hard to understand for people in America. You know, are all the Jews in Israel observant? No. Are all the, uh, it's actually more likely not the case. Right. Most Jews in Israel are secular, just like most Americans. American Jews are secular. Uh, there are more similarities and differences and more opportunities here in Israel and in America for, for Jews to appreciate each other and appreciate uh, their Jewish identity. There's always been a great history of American support, I mean financial support, for Bar-Ilan University. Is that continuing now in 2018? Of course it is. Um, you know, if you, we walk around the campus and, and we see many, many buildings here with American names on them. Um, what we kind of have to transition from now, uh, from the past to now, is that we're not going to be building a lot of new buildings. We have a, a, a plethora of programs to, uh, to fund. And, and uh, we bring the message to people in the United States about what we can do, the things we're really doing, and, and people react so positively. And uh, we're going to be doing even more. There's a whole new uh, rebranding effort going on in Barilan in Israel that we'll be uh, dovetailing with in the U.S. and bringing it to uh, the American donor base. Um, it's true that our total amount of fundraising is not on a par with some of the other great institutions in the state of Israel, and, and they are wonderful institutions, Technion, Weizmann, etc. But it's only because people don't yet comprehend what the value, the Zionist and, uh, story is that we have. And when that story is going to be launched out to them very soon, our fundraising, although it's good, it'll become even better. And people will do it because give money because we'll see the value of what we do to unify and educate people here in Israel and abroad. Yeah, and I would also add to that, uh, once they realize the academics and the research that's going on at Bar Ilan, oh. I cited early... It's second to none. I second to none. We have, we, we have, we have uh, quantum uh, research, nanotechnology research, brain research. It's, it's, you know, we, we've had just a tremendous investment in science. We spent, uh, it, uh, it's really a place that combines a Jewish approach to living in this modern world. We spent about five minutes during the um, early part of this broadcast talking about the nano drops that we are hearing about and how prof- <laughs> professors... Yeah, you put in your eyes or something. Right. Turn into, uh, Which is unbelievable. You Profes- need to do laser surgery or something. Professors and doctors from Bar Ilan are talking about a day when there will be no more eyeglasses. Uh, all because of the research. Or that they've done. I, yeah. I could use that. <laughs> <laughs> That's for sure. All of us can. Uh, Alan Zeckelman is with us, chairman of the Board of American Friends, Bar Ilan University. Big day today. Uh, what do you say about uh, Malcolm Holmline with the honorary doctoral? Pretty good choice, huh? You know, many people have chosen him to give him, cho- he, uh, chosen to give honors to him. Um, and, and he, but 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 it's it's. I think it's very special. I, I would bet that he would say that it's very meaningful to him to be getting it from Barilon because Barilon really embodies a term, the things that that have driven him Good to point. do the things that he's done in this world. Uh, I, 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 we're so proud to be able to give it to him. And uh, the interview today that I heard him give. Blew me away. I had some friends in America listening to your show online, and they're WhatsApping me during it, saying, "I, I, I don't know much. I didn't know much about Malcolm Holmline before, but he's just unbelievable." Uh, and of course, they not know about your show too. So, <laughs> word we'll spreading about your show will have more listeners, hopefully, in the Detroit area. Thank God. Thank God. We always want to do that. Well, I thank you. Uh, congratulations on today and tomorrow, and of course, uh, in your role as chairman thank of the you. board, American Friends Bar Ilan University is. Uh, 
I, I'm sure is that it's not the easiest of positions, but people have to step up when it comes time for community service. And one of this, yep. uh, one of the most important things we could do is continue to support institutions like this one. Yep. Thank you, Alan Zeckelman. A pleasure, okay, take care. pleasure to have you on. Alan Zeckelman, Chairman of the Board, American Friends, Bar Ilan University. You're listening to the Nahum Siegel Network as we continue uh, with a, uh, a wonderful array of people who are uh, uh, part of the, um, part of the uh, infrastructure of Bar Ilan. In Alan's case, American Friends. We spoke with the uh, uh, director of the Midrashad Bar Ilan, Dr. Tova Ganzel. Um, Yehuda Shilat, representing the students and alumni, a proud alum of Bar Ilan, somebody who's originally from New Jersey. And uh, upcoming, we um, we have um, uh, a couple of more conversations before we hopefully get to Malcolm Honline himself. He is scheduled to join us. Rabbi Ari Khan is going to be with us in just a couple of minutes. He is the co-author of the brand new book with um, Senator Joe Lieberman, and we will talk about that in just a few minutes here at the Malcolm Siegel Network. Uh, everybody uh, will have an opportunity if you missed Malcolm Holmline's presentation from earlier today, or tonight, I should say, at Bar Ilan. You'll have an opportunity. We will archive it and make it available to everybody um, for your listening pleasure later on. Miriam L. Wallach is here. Not everyone will consider it pleasure because of I, I think he gave some directives and muster to the Jewish world that was uh, quite appropriate, but very strong at certain points. But well-deserved. And certainly well-deserved, of course. <laughs> and that's his right, frankly. Oh, yeah. That's and- his right. And hopefully he'll join. He is still scheduled to join us, right? Yes. Toward, toward the end of this broadcast. Correct. So he will be our culminating interview. Another few minutes from now. We'll... Dr. Honline. Oh, not till right. tomorrow, right? Oh, that's true. Right. We have another day before we have to. But uh, but as everyone has pointed out, he's gotten enough of these over the years <laughs> that, that we really legitimately could refer to him in that uh, with that moniker now. Um, so we'll see exactly uh, what he says when we call him that later on today. Uh, the Nahum Single Network and American Friends of Barilan University present this special broadcast. I am told that Rabbi Ari Khan is with us live via telephone. Rabbi Khan is the uh, co-author of the brand new book uh, about Shavuot, co-authored with Senator Joe Lieberman. Rabbi Khan, are you there? Yes. How are you? What a pleasure to welcome you back to the Nahum Siegel Network. You, you've been associated with Barilan University for how long? Since 1991. Wow. In what capacities, if you don't mind reviewing for us? <laughs> From 91 to 94, I only taught. <laughs> and, since 95, and since 95, I've been teaching and also overseeing the overseas students. Uh, some people might be surprised, others will not, by the number of overseas students that are on campus. Uh, it, has it grown considerably over the last few years? Well, I'm, I mainly deal with the program for overseas students, hundred mm. students. But aside from that, there are hundreds of kids around, of young people around. So, and, and the number grows all the time. One of the uh, alums of uh, Barilan joined us earlier, who's originally from New Jersey, was describing how, frankly, the professors and department heads, you know, when when there's a foreign student, which somebody from New Jersey would be are there, they have trouble with language, other things, they're extremely helpful in helping them get through their courses and making it as, as friendly an encounter as possible there, and that obviously is a big help for those considering going there. For sure. And, and, a, and a lot of uh, disciplines, the textbooks are English. Right. So, Which the, is a, so the foreign students have an advantage. It's a big help. Uh, the book is called With Liberty and Justice, The 50-Day Journey from Egypt to Sinai, many of our listeners are familiar with the works of Rabbi Ari Khan, I'm proud to say, and there are many of 
your books on my shelves, and they're all very enjoyable, scholarly, and uh, and wonderful to read. Some might be surprised that it would be a good shidduch for Rabbi Ari Khan and Senator Joe Lieberman to co-author a book. Could you tell us about this pursuit that's now out called With Liberty and Justice, The 50-Day Journey from Egypt to Sinai? Yeah, what I will say is that Senator Lieberman is among the, the classiest and the most experienced people involved in the Jewish community, and therefore to do a project with him was an absolute honor for me. And uh, it was something, it was his idea. He wanted to do something which was a little more Torah-based than his previous works or experience had been, and he had this idea of uh, trying to do this together, and I think that the end product is really interesting. Um, how would you describe it? Is it is it a I don't know an analysis of history? Is it all you know Torah based? Meaning you're analyzing the passages of of Passover and Shavuos? Is it something much more contemporary? How would you would describe it? It's it's fifty short pieces. Beginning of the work is to trying to understand the, the importance of law and seeing how law has always been a part of Judaism. I think that's really an obvious point. And along the way, the, you know, the senator shares a lot of his experiences, his stories. Uh, the man met Martin Luther King. I mean, the, the man met his presidents and, uh, and chastised at least one president, which came into, when we discussed the Ten Commandments, a particular commandment, you can guess which one. Right. And, and it, it goes into all kinds of parts of Jewish and thought. It upon free in terms of Passover, but really it's the march to... Uh, to Sinai and to, and to law and accepting the law. Right. Um, uh, would somebody who's not familiar with uh, Egypt to Sinai, meaning somebody not of the Jewish faith, find an interest in this book? I, I believe they would. I believe they would. I, look, we, we wrote it for multiple audiences, and one of them, I'll say the main audience, were people who understand, people who are part of, uh, of our tradition. But we saw it as being the perfect work to give, or book to give, maybe even like as an Afi Coleman present, to the non-religious relative who only has Passover, but doesn't have really a good step in order to, you know, to continue. Rabbi Ari Khan is with us with Liberty and Justice, the 50-day journey from Egypt to Sinai. Rabbi Khan, of course, since the 90s, head of the uh, overseas program at Bar-Ilan University, hence he's part of our broadcast today as we concentrate on this special day for the American Friends of Bar-Ilan University. Um, sometimes people joke, sometimes they're serious that Shavuos is the forgotten holiday. It's not, (laughs) there aren't even 10 holidays in the Jewish calendar, and yet it may not make the top 10 list, frankly, for a lot of people. Um, is is there a way you think, especially as it continues to be academically based, you know, uh, giving of the Torah, Torah study, etc., is there a way to make Shavuos a a bit more appealing to those who are on the periphery? Well, you know, for non-religious Israelis, it was one of the things, maybe one of the few things they did keep because of the side of it in terms of the Bikurim, the agricultural side to it. So that's something which I think in industrial society people sort of moved away from. But, you know, it has two sides to it. All Jewish holidays have two sides, what I would call the more historical and then the theological, or also the agricultural. What we have is a holiday where if you take away the agriculture, so then the only thing you're left with is Sinai, and I'm making it sound like Sinai is not significant. Right. It is important, even in, in, in a modern society, even if we don't have Bikurim to put on our shoulders and march to Jerusalem with, 
just to think and to be thankful for the bounty which God's given us. I think that's a very important contemporary message. One of the uh, statements about uh, which I saw in, in one of the reviews says that the authors, meaning, of course, Senator Lieberman and yourself, Rabbi Khan, uh, follow the annual journey from Egypt to Sinai, illustrating there can be no liberty without law, no freedom without justice. Many quote-unquote libertarians, or those who lean in that direction, may not may not uh, be readily uh, um, uh, um, uh, apt to agree with that, about no liberty without law. How can one convince them and others that the only way to have free and, and real liberty is with, a, is with a system of laws? Well, I, I think all of us are enslaved to different things, and I think the point is when we leave Egypt, and therefore at that moment we were free, the truth is we weren't free at that point. And, and real freedom became, instead of the person with an impossible number of possibilities, I think that freedom also is somebody who has direction, and I think that that's something which liberates us from, uh, from confusion. So it could be that you're correct that the libertarian will not be convinced at all, but even the libertarian doesn't want there to be... Understood. With Liberty and Justice, the 50-day journey from Egypt to Sinai, uh, co-authors are Senator Joe Lieberman and our guest, Rabbi Ari Khan. Rabbi Khan is the Director of Overseas Program at Barilan University. Uh, big day for Barilan today. I thank you so much for joining us, and uh, good luck with the book. Okay. Thank you. Thank you very much. A pleasure. Rabbi Ari Khan here at the Nahum Siegel Network. We are uh, speaking with uh, a variety of people who are associated with Barilan University on this very special day. Uh, the Impact Center for the Study of Judaism in Israel and North America has been announced. The formal program has taken place with Malcolm Honline, which we had for you earlier. Um, Bar Ilan's professor, Aaron Mayer, is with us live via telephone, uh, known as the Indiana Jones of Israel. Um he is on his 20-year excavation of the biblical city of Gat, and he is ready to discuss with us how archaeology deepens our roots in the land of Israel. Professor Mayer, shalom, shalom. Thank you for joining us. My pleasure. Uh, thank you for having me. Uh, when one thinks of archaeology, I would guess in the area of archaeology, there is no place that they would think of more than the land of Israel. No greater history, uh, no deeper roots, so to speak. Um the the, the I, I can only imagine how many projects you've been involved with over the years. Could you give us a a a short overview, if possible, of some of the places and things that you've had a hand in discovering and bringing to the forefront over the last decades? Well, okay. Um, first of all, um, as you said, I've been working for more than twenty years at the site of Telesafi God, God, you know, God of the Philistines, Goliath's hometown. So I would say that's that's really my um, my primary focus for many decades. But for, before that, I worked um, in Jerusalem at various excavations. I worked in uh, in Beit Sha'an uh, in the northern Israel. I worked in Chatzor, northern Israel. I worked at a site or two in Tel Aviv, uh, in the area of Tel Aviv. So I, I've been around, but I would say that my, um, my main, um, uh, you know, place where I, I would say also, you know, you know, in 40 years from there, we said, where did Mayer work uh, and what's his main contribution? I would say the excavation of uh, Telesafi. Professor Aaron Mayer with us, Department of Biblical Archaeology, Barlan University. Um, it, are they all very, very different? 
to us, you know, people who are not that familiar with archaeological digs and projects, it might seem the same with a lot of very similar elements. To someone like you, are all these projects very, very different? Yes, because each site uh, is different from its geographic placement and, you know, whatever, even the soil that you have there. But more importantly, from an archaeological point of view and a historical point of view, uh, each site represents different uh, historical and cultural features. So if I'm excavating a site which is, uh, for example, during the, the time of the First Temple, the biblical period, it's an Israelite site or a, a Judaite site or a Philistine site, it will be very different from what I find there and what I don't find there, and it will tell a very different story of the peoples who live there. So, you know, just like you you could say that someone who's an expert at cars and can tell the difference between a a 58 Chevy and a a 58 Ford and a 62 Chevy and a 75 Chevy, and and many people can't do that, I can tell the difference between, you know, the different cultures of antiquity and and make some sense out of it. So I think uh, this knowledge that I have enables us to tell a story, if you want to yarn about the past, and and as I said in the beginning, um, helps us um, bring some let's say um, tangible evidence uh, to, to to tell the story of the past, to give it color to give it meaning In the city of God, have you found any tangible evidence of the existence of Goliath? Well, we haven't found the existence of Goliath itself, and, I'm, and, I, and I, I always joke that if I found one large finger digit um, I, I'd immediately report it to the press, and so far we haven't. <laughs> but uh, but we have found a lot of evidence of the Philistines, and we even found an inscription with has names that are very similar to the name of Goliath. It's not Goliath, but it it means that people with you know of the same cultural background as described in the biblical text, in fact, did live at, at Gat. And or for example, we, there's a very famous st- story in the Bible where David comes to the city gate of Gat, and Achish, the king of Gat, meets. Him and David realizes that his life is in danger and he he, he feigns madness. Uh, it's a very famous story in the book of Samuel. So um, we found the gate of God. So it doesn't, you know, we can't say, oh, there, there, David, you know, we for sure found David, but we found the background which enables the story to be told and to told in a way which um, gives it life and color. And I think that's the that's the really fascinating aspect of that that archaeology anywhere, but particularly in Israel, gives you is that it it enables to take um, historical and biblical events that are very often very far away and very um, remote, and I would say particular uh, nowadays when, um, uh, like, uh, I would say the younger generation has a 2.4 second uh, attention span. Um, So if you can get something that that you can hold, you can touch, you can excavate, you can you can pull, pull out a shirt from the ground and say, this shirt is from the time of uh, David, this shirt is from the time of Isaiah, this shirt is from the people who, uh, who Goliath was uh, one of their neighbors, it suddenly turns these stories not into something theoretical that you read in a book and fall asleep, but you say, oh wow, I read this, I, I, can, I can connect between my experience and what's written in the, in the, in the text, and in, in, in our case, the biblical text, and it turns it into something that's exciting, um, relevant, pulls you in, and I think that's the um, that's the power that archaeology has. Boy, do I need about an hour or two to interview you at full length. I have so many questions to ask. I'm sorry we're limited to these few minutes. I should, though, before I uh, uh, before we say goodbye, I, I've got to ask you about Bar Ilan University. 
uh, you at the Department of Biblical Archaeology at Bar Elon. I-, I would guess that to do work like yours, you really need the support of a great academic institution. Am I right? Yes, I mean, for, well, first of all, it's the it's the Department of Land of Israel Studies and Archaeology, if you want to be accurate. Okay. Uh, and yes, um, uh, you can only excavate in Israel um, if you have the the backing of a of an academic institution and you get the licensing from the Israel Antiquities Authority, which is the government uh, body which which um, regulates archaeology in Israel. And uh, more important than that, you need funding. And and uh, uh, if uh, people are interested, you know. We need the funding to continue working in um, in archaeology, and I'll, and, I'll, and another thing is uh, we accept volunteers. Anybody wants to come out and get get dirty, but get some uh, have a lot of fun and uh, learn about the past and and tangibly feel it, come join us. I may take We're you up on that, field. Professor Mayer. Thank you so much for joining us today. My pleasure. Great to speak to you. Really amazing. Uh, you are listening to the Nahum Siegel Network special coverage of. Uh, our presentation with the American Friends of Bar Ilan University right here on the Nahum Siegel Network at NahumSiegel.com and, of course, on the beloved NSN app. Malcolm Honline is Executive Vice Chairman of the Conference of Presidents of Major American Jewish Organizations. Tomorrow receives the honorary doctorate at Bar Ilan. Today we enjoyed, and I say that in quotation marks because of uh, uh, the, the intensity of the uh, presentation, uh, the uh, in- incredible... Um, opening lecture, Q&A, interview, whatever you want to call it, as they launched a new impact center for the study of Judaism in Israel and North America. Mr. Honline, welcome back to the Nahum Siegel Network. Thank you. Thank you for carrying it. I, I say enjoy in quotation marks because, boy, did you let us have it. Did you let us have it as a Jewish and And we deserved it, frankly, uh, as a Jewish community. I have some of the notes about some of the things you said, and boy, oh boy, people who avoid getting involved, people who really leave it to others or show a complete disinterest. Uh, I believe that they were one of your targets today. Would that be accurate? Yes. <laughs> but we're all the targets because all of us can do better, and all of us have to start looking at the realities that we face, and we get so sidetracked by narrowing, by scandals, by all sorts of things, rather than focusing on what's really important. And we have critical decisions and critical choices to make. And that's why I was what I was trying to highlight. Even though, you know, I could have spoken much longer about each of the subjects because we get, you know, it's, it, they're very complex and um, things I think about a lot. You know, we um, you mentioned this in 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 part of the presentation, and as we were discussing your early early appearances on our broadcast from years ago. Uh, you were the only one who was um, warning the world, even United States presidents, leaders of the world, about Islamic fundamentalism. Uh, we, of course, know that there was a wake-up call September of 2001, and that's when we started to have these regular conversations on the air. And uh, not that you ever wanted to be justified, of course, but but one would suspect that now as you warn the world and continue to warn the world about Iranian uh, activity, Syrian activity, and so many other parts of the world, South America and many others, uh, you, you would hope that that the world and its leaders would get the same wake up call that they got back, you know, years ago. Obviously, then at a price, but hopefully, what you're telling everyone now worldwide will resonate with them at some point, and they'll wake up to what's happening around us. Uh, absolutely, this discussion was more about internal Jewish affairs, but you know, Iran remains the number one challenge and more issue that we all have to be dealing with. I started meeting with presidents. I met with George Bush, one, about Iran, 
when again people just didn't know why and why why we were so concerned and I kept in touch with Iranian dissidents who kept in touch with uh, you know Iranian people here and there um, because the, it, it, there was the clear emergence to me of this danger this growing danger nascent danger of a country that was on the road not only to regional uh, dominance but also to the potential of a nu- nuclear capacity. And, you know, I, I mentioned my visits in Russia in the 90s, but on Islamic fundamentalism, I started in the middle 80s, and I know that people thought I was nuts, and many people, many people after 9-11 wrote me letters, I mean hundreds, saying, we apologize, we didn't get it, we didn't know, we, we, you know, we really thought this was something you know, off the wall. And Iran, the same thing, President of the United States, who would talk to me, in some cases, for long periods about it. But the bottom line was the problem, that we weren't getting the action, and we could have preempted a lot of what we see today had action been taken then. Uh, Tamar, you received the honorary doctorate. How meaningful is it uh, for you that uh, Bar-Ilan University is taking this step and and really uh, highlighting your career and uh, creating this impact center to study Judaism in Israel and North America? Well, first of all, I, it's a great honor, and it, by any measure, it's my fourth honorary doctorate, but this, the first one in Israel, which is very special to me. And Bar Ilan, to me, represents the maintenance of Jewish values, Torah values, in, in the modern state of Israel. And, you know, it's, it has 17,000 students. It's a huge institution today with, with a very broad impact on Israel and way beyond Israel. So receiving this is, is really very meaningful and important to me. And the the, um, the role that the new center will play there, I think, will also be very significant, and I hope to be able to be of assistance to them. I was very honored that uh, Rabbi Dr. Ari Berman was there, the president of YU, and the connection between YU and Barilan was also underscored uh, by that, and, and the similarities between the missions of the institutions, uh, even though one is in the U.S. and one is in Israel. No question about it. Um... <laughs> I, I'd, I'd love to ask this in a more positive manner, but may as well ask it directly. You were pretty direct today as well. Is there any justification for members of our community to largely, in a large fashion, support secular universities? Look, I think that, yes, I do think that there is reason to people who have great affection, memories, connections to their alma mater, whatever it might be, and in uh, academic areas and or institutions or those who feel a specific commitment to art and culture music there is a place for that but the question is where do you set your priorities does 90 percent go to general charities and 10 percent to jewish charities or even less do we do they think about the impact long-term impact of their gifts and what will really make a difference in terms of the Jewish community, where part of that money will go much further and do much more good and impact the education of hundreds of thousands of children if it was given for Jewish education, if we lower tuition, if we were able to provide scholarships and and make it up uh, to the parents who cannot afford it and instead send their kids to public schools where they ultimately get very limited uh, Jewish exposure and Jewish education and uh, I think that, uh, it, and, and that applies also, by the way, to Jewish education in Europe. It's not just in the United States. In Israel, thank God, they they are able to get free tuition and or reduced price tuition. 
So it's not as critical an issue there, the tuition per se, but the educational institutions need support, and we need to continue to attract people to come, the best minds, keep them in Israel and to bring others back and to bring new ones. And you can only do that if you have the infrastructure to accommodate them. And I think the uh, for our, our institutions in America, you know, we are losing every day hundreds and hundreds of young people, young Jews, who are just disaffecting away. And this, you know, they're not against us. They're not against the Jewish people and Jewish religion, Jewish their parents. It, it may not even be an act of rebellion. It's an act of indifference, of apathy, of not having knowing the significance. It's ignorance. It's lack of education. Uh, two more quick things I'll let you go. On this topic, I, I, I was a little surprised, maybe that's not the right word, uh, when you said the Jewish Day School movement is, is you know doing well. Now, now I understand why you said it, because the only way it's lacking is, is those who can't get into it, uh, because of course, but right. you're, you're laying that at the feet of the lay leaders as opposed to uh, at the schools themselves. I was also a Talmud Torah teacher at one time, and I know that that movement, as you indicate, is you know quickly dissipating. Uh, but but you know people, and I could tell you, you know, in a different forum, not here publicly, you know people whose uh, whose grandchildren are being rela- raised as Orthodox Jews, and those same grandchildren are going to public school. And the, uh, the reason is cost. So, I mean, we agree. I think you're right, right. You're right not to lay the blame. I met many in the last few weeks, and uh, I was really taken aback. In some communities, numbers are much greater than in others. And it's, it, it's sometimes surprising, even in affluent communities, that it, it happens. But uh, I understand the cause. But I think, you know, parents have to also set priorities. You know, what do they do for vacation? What kind of car do they drive? What other things? How do they allocate their funds? And, you know, we can't. We also have to consider, are we paying rebbies and faculty a fair and living wage? I mean, why should they sacrifice to educate our children when they should live at poverty level because, you know, schools can't afford to pay them what they should? And we should look at the institutions themselves to make sure that there's the right accountability, that, uh, you know, the facilities truly are communally controlled and, uh, and administered. So there, there are a lot of responsibilities that I think could help uh, assure the, the, the status of the schools, the integrity of our institutions, and enable us to do a better job. And we have to make it a higher priority for those the community can afford it. We know that, that there is a great deal of wealth that is not being shared. And finally, I found your idea about singles converging for an event worldwide on the State of Israel fascinating. Just think of what it would mean if, if tens of thousands from America and from Europe and from Israel would come together. They're, they want to find Jewish mates. They want to have the interaction. And you could build Jewish families for people who, who otherwise would have no opportunity to meet a Jewish mate. You take the thousands at places like Hungary or Belgium, Holland, other countries in Europe, France, England, coming together and meeting in Israel in various locations and having events. You know, there could be study events, there could be sports events, there could be all kinds of things that will attract them and give them an opportunity to mingle and to meet each other. And, you know, out of it could come thousands and thousands of Jewish families. What could be a higher calling or a higher, or something more exciting than that? You know why you're an effective Jewish leader? Because you get the big picture. Most people do not. Thank you. 
Uh, Malcolm Honeline, mazel tov to you. Tomorrow, honorary doctorate at Bar-Ilan University, aside from calling you doctor, any other changes? <laughs> no, just a little more tired having flown for my grandsons by midst in Baltimore, taking a train to get on an airplane to come here and go right to the speech and that event. So Amazing. Enjoy now going to a wedding. Enjoy that and enjoy tomorrow. And thank you. We'll speak with you at the end of the week. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thanks a lot. Malcolm Holmline, we wish him a mazel tov. Honorary doctorate at Barilan University tomorrow. Today, this very interesting encounter at Barilan. Um at Barilan University in Israel. And of course this presentation from us here at the Nahum Siegel Network and American Friends of Barilan University. Miriam L. Wallach. I guess it's time to almost wrap things up here on this Monday. <laughs> Usually after Malcolm, you say it's time to say good job. <laughs> <laughs> um, I don't think the uh, the title of doctor is required based on his reaction. I don't think it's required. No, it almost sounded like he was unbelievably uncomfortable with the right. potential of being called doctor, even though, as he mentioned, this is not his first, nor do I imagine it'll be his last. 100%. Uh, you mentioned earlier in this broadcast what it was like for us when we walked onto the Barilan campus for the first time after hearing about it for God knows how many years, right? That was quite an experience just being there oh, yeah. and seeing what it's like and knowing that it's uh, catering to thousands, the figure 17,000 is being used, of students and, uh, and faculty. And uh, now I think today we've learned even more about, about Barilan. Sorry about that. <laughs> this is what happens when you're in the same broadcast chair for eight hours in a row. This is what right. happens. Right. It's called a leg cramp. <laughs> exactly. Uh, we've learned a lot about Barilan today, and we've also um, uh, had an opportunity to. Uh, I, I would never have known that these impact centers, at, like the one introduced today, actually exist already in so many different areas. Right. So much research being done, so much academia, so many different uh, uh, angles that that's coming from, and all under this incredible Jewish auspices, Torah auspices, etc. You know, as a as a child of academics, I always thought it was it was astounding that people were paid to think and to speak. Right. And yet now as an adult, I appreciate the fact that there are people who are paid to think and to speak cuz we need those people. That's what that's what their role is in our society to research, to give ideas, to do the to to do the nitty gritty so that we can all make informed decisions so that we can be better citizens so that we can be better Jews and that's part of what this is about 100%. I want to thank the American friends of Barlon University. They are obviously big thinkers and they obviously get the big picture and they understood the importance of taking what quote unquote could be called a local event or a small campus event uh, or large campus event in this case and uh, and keeping it on campus. Uh, however, mm -hmm. they saw the big picture and saw the uh, uh, the benefits of bringing this to the world through us here at the Nahum Siegel Network. Obviously, this is going to be archived. People could hear this forever. Uh, and I'm sure the video will be available as well for people to uh, to see. And we'll be referencing this for people to check out because this was an important day and uh, one that was very interesting. And like I said, um, I thought Malcolm Honeline took the opportunity to really let the Jewish world have it where they needed to hear it. Uh, in the areas that they needed to hear it, whether it's Jewish sure. education, getting involved in causes, helping Jews around the world, making better use of our time and mm -hmm. our resources, uh, was really a... Uh, Well-deserved. As some might say, a good musr schmooze. Yeah, we, um, we, it was, <laughs> we've earned it. Yeah, that's for <laughs> sure. Uh, our thanks again to American Friends of Barilan University. Thank you to Miriam Alwalek. Thank you to Yoni Pollock, working very hard during this... Uh, what is it already? 
Three hours that we were doing this? Something like that. About My thanks, hours? by the way, to Lonnie Ostro and to Ilana Oberlander. Thank you both. Both from uh, Barilan University. And of course, our profound thanks to Robert Katz. Thank you very much, Robert Katz. On this end, uh, we'd be remiss not to thank the person who monitors all of this and makes sure we're always on and always uh, being presented uh, in as best a way as possible. And that's the one and only Avrami Finkelstein. Thank you, Avram, for... Uh, Again, monitoring another special broadcast here at the Nahum Siegel Network. I thank you all for tuning in, and a big thank you to... Whoa, there we go. That was very dramatic. A big thank you to the American <laughs> Friends of Barilan University. This has been a special presentation of AFBIU, and you can check out their website, afbiu.org, and of the Nahum Siegel Network.